Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Woodland, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. Welcome back to the new year. We've got lots of great episodes working their way through our pipeline for you. Will McCaskill's first appearance on the show was a crowd pleaser, and I expect this one to be equally popular or maybe even more so. Among other topics, uh, we talk about why apparently common sense moral commitments uh, might imply that you should sit at home motionless and how to potentially fix that problem, uh, what an altruist should do if they're risk averse, uh, whether we're living at the most important time in history, uh, and also Will's new views on the likelihood of extinction in the next 100 years. Uh, we've covered some of those issues uh, before, but Will has a lot of new and sometimes unexpected opinions to share. And we've got chapters in this episode uh, to help you skip to the section of the episode that you most want to listen to. Before that, though, a handful of quick notices. First, you might be pleased to know that people who started listening to our previous episode with David Chalmers, uh, our longest release yet, on average finished fully 59% of it. Uh, the whole episode is 4 hours and 42 minutes long, uh, and on average, people are making it through 2 hours and 45 minutes of it. That's a fantastic commitment from you all, and I think vindicates our uh, in-depth approach to, uh, to interviewing people. Second, uh, in my last interview with Will, uh, we discussed the book he was writing at the time uh, called Moral Uncertainty. That book is now coming out in late April and you can pre-order it on Amazon. Uh, we'll include a link to that in the blog post associated with the show. Um, of course, keep in mind though that this is a pretty academic book, so it's probably most suitable for people who are really into the topic of moral uncertainty. Third, as we discuss in the episode, uh, Will works at the Global Priorities Institute at Oxford. Uh, and GPI is currently hiring pre-doctoral uh, research fellows in economics. That would be a pretty great opportunity for anyone who might do a PhD in economics or is already doing one. Unfortunately, the closing date for expressions of interest to that job is only uh, 12 hours after I expect this episode to actually come out. Uh, that's at midday UK time on Friday the 24th of January. We'll link to that job uh, in the show notes anyway, uh, just in case uh, one of you might have a shot at getting an application in really quickly. But more generally, I, I know many uh, economists or aspiring economists uh, listen to this show and the Global Priorities Institute is uh, very interested in getting more economists on its research team or having more uh, budding economists uh, visit them in some capacity. So if you find this conversation with Will interesting, you should go fill out the expression of interest form uh, at globalprioritiesinstitute.org opportunities. Uh, it only takes a few minutes to do that and I know they'll be interested to hear from you. You can also, as always, find dozens of other job and career opportunities on our job board at 80,000hours.org slash jobs. Finally, uh, before we get to the interview, uh, in this episode, we bring up a uh, wider range of global problems than we uh, usually have a chance to cover. Uh, for practical reasons, we as an organization have had to focus on knowing an actual material serious amount about a few particular problem areas uh, first before moving on to other things. So we've mostly worked on uh, AI risk, uh, bio risk, and uh, growing uh, people's capacity to do good through, say, uh, global priorities research. Um, and that's because we think these issues are really important and uh, focusing on them is uh, how potentially we can move the needle the most. Uh, but that has meant that our research is on potentially a narrower range of things than the uh, full portfolio of challenges that we think our readers would ideally end up working on solving. So we're excited when we see uh, people exploring other ways to improve the uh, long-term future, uh, especially ones that they have uh, personally really good, uh, uniquely good opportunities uh, to work in. We've now got a decent list of some ideas for uh, how people can do that at uh, 80,000hours.org slash problem hyphen profiles. Uh, if you scroll down to the subheading, uh, potentially pressing issues we haven't thoroughly investigated yet, there's a few dozen listed uh, with a brief analysis of each one, which might help you uh, generate ideas. 
All right, without further ado, here's Professor Will McCaskill. Today, I'm speaking with Will McCaskill. Will will be well-known to many people as a co-founder of the Effective Altruism community. He's an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Oxford University, currently working at the Global Priorities Institute, or GPI for short, a research group led by Hilary Graves, who was interviewed back in episode 46. Will has published in philosophy journals such as Mind, Ethics, and the Journal of Philosophy. And he co-founded Give What We Can, the Center for Effective Altruism, and our very own 80,000 Hours, and he remains a trustee on those organizations' various boards. He's the author of Doing Good Better, another forthcoming book on moral uncertainty, and is in the process of brewing a new book on long-termism. So thanks for attending to the podcast, Will. Thanks for having me on again, Bob. Yeah, so I hope to get to talking about whether we are, in fact, living at the most important time in history. But first, uh, what are you working on at the moment, and why do you think it's a good use of your time? Well, the latter question is tough. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'm currently splitting my time about threefold. One is between ongoing work with Center for Effective Altruism and issues that generally come up as a result of being a well-known figure in the EA movement. That's about a quarter of my time or something. Another quarter of my time spent on Global Polarities Institute and helping ensure that goes well, helping with hiring, helping with strategy, and some academic research. And then the bulk of my time now, which I'm planning to scale up even more, is work on a forthcoming book. Tentatively, you know, working title is What We Are the Future, which is aiming to be both readable by a general audience, hopefully also something that could be cited academically, and really making the case for concern about future generations when combined with the premise that there are so many people in the future, the overwhelming importance of future generations, and then exploration of, well, what follows if you believe that. And so for that purpose, I've been on a speaking tour for the last few weeks, which has been super interesting. Speaking tour, talking about long-termism? Yeah, I've tried to create a presentation that's the core idea and core argument of the book in order that I can get tons of really granular feedback on how people respond to different ideas and what things I'm comfortable saying on stage. Sometimes I think I might believe something, but then do I believe it enough to tell a room full of people? Sometimes <laughs> I feel like my mouth starts making the motions, but actually, actually, I don't really believe it in my heart. And that's pretty interesting. So I've been quite scientific about it. Everyone in the audience gets a feedback form. They get to score how much they knew about the ideas beforehand, how convincing they found the talk. My key metric is of people who put four or less for the first question, which is how much they know, what proportion of them put six or seven in terms of convincingness of the talk. Out of and seven. Out of seven, yeah. And I've, I've given a, a few different variants of the talks. Yeah, what fraction of people are you convincing, roughly? About 50%. Is, oh, wow. Um, yeah. And maybe the data is quite noisy, and so it's not like actually a scientific enterprise. Maybe I've got that up to 60% or something over the course of the period. In terms of the granular feedback, have you learned kind of any arguments that don't go down well or some that particularly do? Yeah, I feel like I've learned a ton actually, and I'm still processing it. One big thing for sure is that many more people are willing to say future people just don't matter mm. than I would expect. So in moral philosophy, the idea that when you're born or when your interests are affected is morally irrelevant that's just absolutely bread and butter. No one would deny that. And so I think I just, you know, would assume that too um, yeah. for the wider world, especially if I'm talking at campuses, a kind of lefty audience in general. Yeah. But no, actually significant, probably the most common objection I get. It's just future um, generations don't matter full stop. Yeah. Oh. Or just why should I care? Yeah. And then the second thing that was most interesting is I was expecting a lot of pushback from the environmentalist side of things where... 
I do talk about the importance of climate change. I talk about the fact that species loss is another way of impacting the long-run future. But they're not the focus of the talk. The focus is on other kind of pivotal events that could happen in the, over the coming 50 years. And I was expecting to get more pushback from people who are like, any moment you're not talking about climate change is attention taking away from the key issue of at the time. And certainly some people said that, but I think just the proportion of people on campuses who are, you know, let's say kind of deep environmentalists is lower than I would have thought. Interesting. Yeah, that's maybe one of the most common pieces of feedback on the podcast we get in terms of like content or substance is that we don't talk enough about climate change or don't think enough about environmentalism or yeah. deep ecology and things like that. Yeah. So yeah, I'm kind of surprised that maybe that's not the case. I suppose, is, was it one of the more common kind of substantive critiques that would be? Yeah, it was still, because it was very spread the way people yeah. would object, that was definitely, it definitely came up. But I think, I mean, maybe I think just people were more happy with the fact that I was saying, yes, climate change is a super important issue. It's not the focus of this talk. And people yeah. were like actually quite open to other issues. Another little piece of evidence there, Bill McKibben, who's an academic at Middlebury College, I think, and has many years been an environmental activist. He's got a recent book where it's actually, it's funny, it's making almost exactly the same argument that I wanted to make, which I'm really happy about, but that we should be really concerned about genetic engineering of humans and artificial intelligence. And he's saying, back 30 years ago, when climate change was like just nascent. You could really, you know, change the policy landscape. Things hadn't gotten entrenched or sclerotic, as you love to say it <laughs> on the podcast. I've so, never heard the word sclerotic as much as... Uh, <laughs> personal um, favorite. Yeah. yeah. But now it's the case that for advances in biosciences and AI, we're in that situation at the moment. Mm. And so it was really great actually seeing someone who's this, you know, long-time climate activist coming up with the same framing of things that I was thinking. Are there any arguments that have gone down better than than you expected? I talk about the fact that future generations are disenfranchised in the world today. Um, They don't have a voice. They don't have a political representation. They can't trade bargain with us. That goes down pretty well. This kind of reminds me of, I guess, I've seen people try to write books by posting chapter by chapter on blogs, or I guess like posting their ideas on Twitter or, or Facebook yeah. and then getting feedback that way. So this is like an in-person way of, of doing that. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's kind of the thing that my most thought of was it's like the Y combinator advice of talk to your users. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. Where Anne and I ran a study on Positly, you know, trying to get some general sense of how people react. But the sorts of people I'm wanting to talk to are people, you know, undergraduate and graduate students on college college campuses is pretty close to the target demographic. And so yeah. nothing really substitutes for being able to interact directly with those people and see what things go down well and which things don't. Do you worry that this could lead you to kind of pander to the, the median like undergraduate student in a way that's like maybe not like as intellectually honest or like maybe appealing to like, maybe you just want to like talk to the people who are most keen on this view rather than like try to get the person who's like kind of resistant to be okay with it? Oh, great. Well, it's interesting I thought you were going to go a different way, which is there's definitely a tension I'm feeling, which is between the pull towards general audience and the pull towards kind of academic seriousness. Mm. And so I'm trying to get those at GPI somewhat invested in the book too, so that I have them pulling me on one side (laughs) and then probably the publishers and so on are pulling me on the other side. Then there's a question of, well, are you trying to make it just okay for everybody versus some people who really love it. I think I'm aware of that. So my key metric was proportion of people who love it 
I, I would have actually gone for the P metric of just proportion of people who give it seven, but that was just too noisy. Um, uh, okay, yeah. So six or seven. And turns out people at Cambridge just don't give extreme scores. Huh. I didn't get a single score that was above six or below four. Interesting. Um, yeah, from like, a, from like 100 people. <laughs> is that something with the grading? Because I know at Cambridge, right, they don't give like, oh, it's like very rare to get a score kind of above 85% or something. Maybe, recently. that's like, so I like just thought. To, we just don't use sevens. It's like, it's I, just. Yeah, I just thought maybe it's British people versus Americans <laughs> are like more likely to. Oh, so you're doing this in America as well? Oh, yeah. I did um, Stanford, Berkeley, Harvard, MIT, Yale, NYU, Princeton. Any any big differences other than the scoring? Yeah, I think more driven by the nature of the local groups rather yeah. than by the universities. Um, I was thinking maybe Americans are systematically different than Brits. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously they are. <laughs> <laughs> Brits, uh, especially on college campuses where Brits are more academic. Hmm. On average, obviously you get super academic people in US universities, but... You know, Oxford and Cambridge select only on the basis of academic yeah. potential, whereas there's more of a sense in the US of wanting well-rounded individuals. Mm. Don't get them. What with, does that <laughs> don't get them in them. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's legacy students, there's athletes, there's... Um, and then, yeah, people who are just yeah, future politicians. And that varies a bit by school. But then, on the other hand, people in the US are more entrepreneurial. Mm. They're more kind of go-gettery. And it's, yeah, I think the cultural difference is quite notable, actually. So it seems like your life has changed a fair bit over the last few years. You used to kind of be like more in doing organization, organizational work, and now you're like more on the academic track. Or That's right. Yeah, I think it's like there's been two waves where, which I vacillated between where I obviously started very much in the academic track. Then there was a period of several years of setting up Giving What We Can, 80,000 Hours, Center for Effective Altruism, where I was clearly much more on the you know, setting up these nonprofits, operational side, then writing Doing Good Better and finishing up my PhD. That was a long chunk when I was back in the search mode. Yeah. And then at that point, I was moved back to then working closely with 80,000 hours yeah. and then running Center for Effective Altruism. <laughs> and now I finally, outside view doesn't believe this, yeah. <laughs> um, I finally like settled. Calling. Yeah, I mean, I think I extended the period when I was a graduate student. I think it made sense to be kind of riding two horses at once, I think I probably should have focused earlier than I did. Whereas now I'm feeling much more confident that I'm kind of making my bets. Yeah. And that makes sense. EA is big now. It's going to last a long time. Yeah. We no longer need like people trying to spin plates <laughs> um, all over the place. We need more people who are willing to commit for longer time periods. And that applies to me as much as it does anyone to, to anyone else. Yeah. Are you enjoying this phase more? You seem kind of happier these days. So. Yeah, I'm enjoying it a lot more, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, uh, and, you know, that's not a coincidence. There's a whole set of things that are correlated with each other where the causation goes both ways of what I enjoy most, what I think I'm best at, where I think I'm having the most impact. And it's definitely, yeah, clear to me that if I think about running an organization and so on, like I can do it. I don't think I'm like 99th percentile good at this thing. Yeah. Whereas I think the thing that I'm best at and then end up enjoying most and then also think that I get the most impact out of is this kind of in between academia and the wider world taking ideas, not necessarily being the, again, the 99th percentile kind of academic, yeah. not being Derek Parfait or something, but instead being able to crystallize those ideas, get to the core of them, and then transmit them more, more widely. 
Let's turn now to uh, this paper that you've been working on, which I really enjoyed because it's got kind of a very cheeky angle. It's kind of yeah. maybe cornering uh, people who I um, am inclined to disagree with already anyway. It's called the paralysis argument, and you've been writing it with your colleague, Andreas McGensen. It has this, yeah, pretty fun conclusion. Uh, how, would, how would you describe it? Okay, well, I'll start off by, it's not even a thought experiment, just a question. So I know you don't drive, but suppose you have a car, suppose that you're, you have a day off, and you're not sure whether to just stay home and watch Netflix or to do some shopping. And you think, well, suppose you go shopping and you drive to various different places in London and you know buy various different things, come back over the course of the day. And my question is, how many people did you kill in the course of doing that? Well, I know the answer, but I guess the yeah. naive answer is uh, nobody. The naive answer is nobody. And I'm not talking about, well, you could have spent your time making money that you could have donated. I'm not talking about your carbon emissions. Instead, what I'm talking about is the fact that over the course of that day, you have impacted traffic, you've slightly changed the schedules of thousands, maybe probably tens of thousands of people. And, well, on average, over the course of someone's life, which is, I think is 70,000 days, a person will have about a child. So if you've impacted 70,000 days, then statistically speaking, you've probably influenced the exact timing of a conception event. And what does that mean? Well, that actually means you've almost certainly changed who got born in that conception event. In a typical ejaculation, there are 200 million sperm. Things you um, learn on the show. I know. <laughs> it's a little factoid that everyone can... Uh, uh, Dine out on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if two people who are having sex and going to have a, a child, if that, the timing of that event changes ever so slightly, even by 0.1 of a second, almost certainly it's going to be a different sperm that fertilizes the egg, a different child is born. But now you've got a different child that's born, they're going to impact all sorts of stuff, including loads of other reproductive events. And so that impact will filter out over time. And at some point, it's hard to assess exactly when, but at some point, let's say it's 100 years time, basically everybody's a different person. But if you're having such a massive impact over the course of the future by driving to the shops, well, one thing that you're going to have done is changed when very many people die. So even just looking at automobile accidents, I think 1% to 2% of people in the world die in car crashes. And it's obviously very contingent when someone dies. So over the course of this next 100 years, when all these identities of people are becoming different as a result of your action to drive to the shops, that means that for loads of people who would have existed either way, they will die young. They will die in a car crash that they wouldn't have otherwise died in. And now... In expectation, exactly the same number of people will have been saved from car crashes and will die later than they would have otherwise done. And that's where the distinction between consequentialism and non-consequentialism comes in. So from a consequentialist perspective, if you've caused the early deaths of a million people and extended the lives by just the same amount of a million other people, well, that's just the same, washes out. So the consequentialist doesn't find anything troubling here. But the non-consequentialist endorses the following two claims. And I'm not saying all non-consequentialists do, but this is a, a paradigm non-consequentialist view. Endorses an acts emissions distinction such that it's worse to cause harm than it is to allow harm to occur. And an asymmetry between benefits and harms, where it's more wrong to cause a certain amount of harm than it is right or good to cause a certain amount of benefit. And if you have those two claims, then you've got to conclude that 
these perhaps millions of people, certainly hundreds of thousands of people who have died young as a result of what you've done, the fact that you've caused those deaths is worse <laughs> than the corresponding amount of benefit from the fact that you've saved the same number of lives. And so if you want to avoid causing huge amounts of harm that are not offset by the corresponding benefit, then you ought, in every instance where you might affect the other reproductive events, you ought to just do nothing, do whatever is the omission. And in the paper, we don't take a stand on what counts as omitting. It could be the Jain practice of Salakana, where you sit motionless until you slowly starve to death, where the Jains were defending that view as the best way to live on the grounds of do no harm. It could also be just you act on every impulse, you go with the flow. But whatever this, whatever the, this non-consequentialist view decides is an omission, doesn't sound than like a normal action, life. It's not going to be a normal life. Yeah, you're going to be extremely restricted in what you can do. Yeah. Okay. So the the basic reason that you're getting this result is that that we're drawing an asymmetry, a distinction between creating benefits and causing harms. And so, in as much as you're creating like lots of benefits and lots of harms, it just seems like everything's going to be forbidden, or like. Yeah, I guess everything except, if, unless you can find some neutral thing that you can do that doesn't cause benefits or harms in the relevant sense. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, for clarification for this kind of wider, this audience who probably is very familiar with utilitarian model reasoning, consequentialist model reasoning, it's a kind of wider project at Global Priorities Institute of thinking, well, how does long-termism look if you're taking alternative model views? And so this is kind of one example of well, if we're reasoning seriously about the future and we're non-consequentialist in this paradigmatic way, what follows? Yeah. So that's kind of intuitive, but I guess I found the paper as I was trying to read it a little bit confusing. It's very, it's, 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 <laughs> it gets kind of dense. It's, it's kind of dense. It's definitely a philosopher's paper. That's yeah. Cool. So there's, uh, I guess, also this distinction between, so there's a distinction between harming people and benefiting them. And then yeah. there's also this thing between like harming people and allowing people to be harmed, which seems yeah. to, be, to be relevant. That's Do you want right. to explain why, why you end up talking quite a bit about that? So... The key question, and if I was going to guess at what is the most promising stand for non-consequentialists to try and respond to this, is to say, well, yes, we think that in general there's a distinction between actions and omissions. So, for example, most people intuitively would say that if I saw you, Rob, drowning in a shallow pond and then walked on by, that would be very wrong, but it wouldn't be as wrong as if I strangled you right now. <laughs> Um, that's quite intuitive that there's a difference there. Yeah. But there's a question of, well, okay, what if I kill you via driving to the shops and then causing <laughs> differently productive events that then have this kind of long causal chain that results in your death? Is that still an action or is it an omission? There's definitely a sense in which it's an act. Intuitively, it kind of seems like an action. Like I've acted. You moved. Yeah. I, I moved. Yeah. <laughs> I did this like positive thing of driving to the shops. I didn't know it was going to kill you. That's. That's a distinction, but um, it still seems like a positive action. But perhaps the non-consequentialist can come up with some way of carving that distinction such that for these kind of very long-run, causally complex effects, they just count as emissions or something. Okay, so they would try to get out of it by saying, oh, you're not actually harming them, you're merely allowing them to be harmed because what you were doing wasn't an action in the relevant sense of like actively causing someone harm. That's and, right. And but, so that's going to get us out of this thing that like harming people is like not merely bad but prohibited. And That's right. But then the question is, well, can you have an account of acts and omissions that, that satisfies that, that you know, yeah. gives us that answer? And that's where it starts to get very in the weeds More and technical, technical because yeah. the existing accounts of acts and omissions, it gets quite complicated. There is one account that is 
kind of independently very influential, which is Bennett's account. On this account, supposing I make something happen, or yeah, I cause some event to happen. That is an action if the way you would explain that happening involves some bodily movement of mine that is a very small part of the overall space of all bodily movements I could have taken. Very intuitive. <laughs> really, I think that's what everyone is... meant all along. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think it's actually kind of good. Just... Yeah, all right. okay. <laughs> I, guess, I guess at first blush, it sounds a bit... At first blush, it's yeah. really complicated. Yeah, I always forget exactly how to state it too. Mm. So, okay, so we've got, we started out with this intuitive thing that it's like, your, if your actions cause harm, that's worse than if your actions cause benefit. And indeed, yeah. like actively caught, harming people through your actions um, is probably prohibited. And then we've like ended up with this kind of absurd conclusion that like any actions that you take are probably forbidden yep. ethically. I guess one has to suspect that something's gone wrong here, right? Because it's like cause oh, the conclusion yeah, yeah. is so counterintuitive. So I suppose, yeah, as much as I'd love to kind of skewer deontologists and like find ways <laughs> that their views are, are incoherent, you'd have to guess that maybe, well, you'd have to hope that there's probably some solution here. There's some way that I could patch the view that, uh, that saves them. I mean, do you, you want to like discuss the, the various different attempts that, that, that one could make? Yeah, I mean... It's not totally obvious to me. Like, I do treat it as a reductio. So if I was a non-consequentialist, I'd want to give up one of my starting premises rather than <laughs> endorse that conclusion. Yeah, It's not totally obvious. Like, it seems to follow, from my perspective, quite naturally from the underlying intuitions that are undergirding this style of non-consequentialism, which is, well, it's worse to harm than to benefit. Yeah. And we happen to be in this world, which is so incredibly complicated that your actions inflict huge harms. Um, but I agree and, you know, from the feedback we've gotten, non-consequentialists. Well, actually, there was one a journal we got kind of to the last stage, and it was um, a vote among the editors. And, you know, they all decided they didn't like the paper, but for all different reasons. <laughs> but one of one of whom was like, why is this a deductio? <laughs> she just endorsed yeah. the conclusion. Uh, so a Jane, people, people vary a lot. So someone who's sympathetic to consequentialism just looks at this and says, oh, well, this like just demonstrates the problem with the asymmetry between harming yeah, and benefiting. Of course, so it's yeah. like for, to a consequentialist who doesn't find the appeal of that, it's just like very easy to be like, well, I just never thought there was an asymmetry to begin with. And that's the, no, no problem now. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I, that's what I think the rational thing to do is. Okay. I think it's like a, a way of demonstrating yeah. um, that we shouldn't have had that asymmetry. But then that's really important because even if you might think, well, I'm worried about non-consequentialism in other contexts or something. Yeah. It means that when it comes to thinking about the long-run future, we can't have a harm-benefit asymmetry. Oh, okay. And that's important. You know, when we look at, consider like a carbon tax or something. Yeah, what level of carbon emissions should we try to get to? Well, The Economist says, well, there's some social optimum at which if we were to tax carbon beyond that, then the harms to ourselves would outweigh the harms to others. Um, in fact, all the benefits from burning coal. But... If you've got this harm-benefit asymmetry, you need to go further than that because I'm just benefiting myself by, you know, by burning fossil fuels, mm. but I'm harming someone else. Yeah. And if I've got this harm-benefit asymmetry, I need to get the carbon amount of carbon we emit as a society, not just down to some low level that would be guaranteed by um, a significant carbon tax, but actually just kind of down to zero. So it really does make a difference, I think, for how we think about the long run. Yeah, interesting. But although people who think that it's not okay to harm people usually do have like all kinds of exceptions. So if like I say something mean to you that is true, that I think is actually, well, it's good for the world that you know this like bad thing that you've done, but it's like going to make you feel sad. Most people don't think that that's impermissible. Most people don't think it's like impermissible to drive just because they're polluting. Yeah. I mean, I mean maybe they're, it's more questionable the second case, but. Yeah, you at least need to have some sort of explanation of why, yeah, why it's not wrong to harm, where 
perhaps that there's some implicit social contract that we can all drive and everyone benefits. Perhaps you're assuming the other person consents um, if you're inflicting something, you know, you're the surgeon and... Yeah, but in that case, you're not harming them overall. It's just like, if we really thought that you could just like never take actions that left others worse off, well, so maybe that's where we're going here, but even just on like an, on a normal level, you'd be like, well, you can't give your like colleague negative feedback. It's like, mm. you can't end a relationship that you really hate. It would just like all, all kinds of actions would obviously just be prohibited, even though they're kind of good for the world. Yeah. I mean, I think in those cases, there's a couple of things to say. One is almost all non-consequentialists would say it's still about weighing the benefits and harms. So um, if the benefits are great enough, then it's okay to inflict some yeah. harms, especially if the harms are small. The second would be that, yeah, not all harms count, perhaps just negative feedback or the harm of, you know, having your heart broken yeah. is just not the sort of harm that counts kind of morally speaking. For this argument, you know, you're killing people. That's mm. certainly the sort of harm that counts, yeah. morally speaking. And then the third thing I think would just be, I think there might be lots of things that one implicitly signs up for. So if you take a job, I think, you know, you're implicitly agreeing to get negative feedback if you're not doing well enough. If you enter a relationship, you're, you know, as part of that, you're understanding that you may be broken up with. Yeah. And that, of course, would be okay because consent can yeah. make harms permissible okay interesting although i guess in the uh pollution case you maybe might think well you just can't, can't drive cars because it's like causing harm to total strangers uh, far away who've never consented possibly. i mean yeah i'm actually i guess not... that doesn't sound so crazy to me to be honest <laughs> yeah it doesn't sound it doesn't sound so crazy i mean perhaps they say the harms are small enough perhaps if the yeah perhaps if the pollution is just within your own country then there's a kind of implicit social contract mm, but what about the person who voted against the contract uh, well, they didn't yeah. consent anyway so <laughs> gets gets complicated yeah so this is a uh, yeah all, all a bit of a big diversion so what kinds of methods would someone who wanted to say well i do believe in the harm benefit asymmetry but nonetheless i don't want to buy this uh, paralysis thing how can they find some way of, of, of escaping the the conclusion of paralysis okay i think there's some ways that don't work and some ways that do so one thing you might be inclined to say i'll start with the ones that don't work one thing you might be inclined to say is that, well, when the consequence goes via the act of another, then it doesn't count. So, you know, in these cases where I do some action, it'll be via other people's actions that then the harm ultimately is committed. So it's mediated um, by someone else's choices. Yeah, exactly. You might think, oh, that absolves me of any kind of responsibility. But the thing is, just intuitively, like, imagine if you're selling arms to some dictatorial regime. That's not <laughs> you know, intuit and you know that though that dictatorial regime is going to use it to kill minorities in the country. It doesn't seem like the fact that the harm is mediated by the dictator and their armies doesn't seem to absolve you of guilt of selling the arms to that dictator. So I think that this that kind of initial response just doesn't generalize. It doesn't seem like actually this is something that we want to that we would want to endorse. Yeah. Do you think in the cases where you actually like dive down and think about concrete cases where you take an action where very foreseeably it's going to cause or allow someone else to do a lot of harm, that in general we would reject that as absolving you? I think so. Yeah. yeah. I think so. So what else uh, might someone try? Well, one thing someone might try is just, oh, well, when the consequences are sufficiently causally distant from you, then they don't matter. But Causally I distant in what sense? Like lots of steps or... Yeah, I mean, there could be various ways you could unpack it. So different actors in the meantime, yeah. Yeah, various, yeah, perhaps various steps. But again, I think this just isn't intuitive. Imagine if you see someone who uh, has built this incredible um, Rube Goldberg machine, okay. <laughs> was yeah. uh, the word I'm looking for. So someone has built this incredibly complex machine. It has all sorts of levers. In fact, it's just this box that 
we don't even know how complex it is inside. And it could be indefinitely complex, but the input is that someone pushes a button, the output is that someone else dies. Well, then it just seems completely irrelevant how causally complex the interior yeah. workings are. Also seems irrelevant like if that's, you know, if it's 20 years delayed or something. If someone knows that that person's going to die, then, well, that's pretty, yeah, you know, so if that's you clearly like, wrong. So. Well, if you like leave a bomb somewhere that's not going to go off for a hundred years and then, but you know, yeah, there'll exactly. be someone in the house and will blow up the house and the people will die. It doesn't, yeah. time doesn't really seem time doesn't, Time doesn't matter. And, and, if you, and with the box thing, if you're like, oh, but I feel bad pressing the button and then someone dies and they say, well, I'll just add more levers and yeah, more gears, exactly. like even more yeah, causal steps. Exactly. It's really, you feel better now. Yeah. It's really unconvincing. What about, so, I guess, foreseeability? Hmm. Is, that, is that another thing that people might say? Well, so the issue is that, at least once I've told you this argument, yeah. <laughs> the harms are foreseeable now. Okay. They're not foreseeable for not any particular person. Hmm. But again, that doesn't seem... Again, you know, imagine I've left a bomb in the forest. There's no particular person that I think has you know, been made worse off, but it's yeah. foreseeably going to harm somebody. Well, that seems wrong. I mean, or just another intuitive case, we call it the Dice of Fortuna, where... You know, this god Fortuna, or goddess, gives you this box with a you know, set of dice in it. And if you roll the dice and it's above the average value of the dice, then someone's life is saved. If it's below the average value of the dice, then someone is killed. And by shaking this box, you get a dollar. Ought you to do it? And the consequentialist will be like, sure, the dollar. <laughs> but the non-consequentialist, I think, should say no. And I think the non-consequentialist would also find it intuitive that you should say no. Yeah. Um, to be honest, yeah. as a consequential standing person, I also find it a bit horrifying. But I don't feel like I would. Okay, you don't feel like interesting. Well, I mean, I guess like even just a little bit of moral uncertainty because the dollar is such a small yeah, amount. Like, yeah, of course. That's yeah. going to trump. So. Yeah, but that's very close now to the situation yeah. that we're actually yeah. in because, again, you don't know who these people got your milk, are go- a tiny yeah. benefit, and then yeah. like hundreds died and hundreds lived. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly, which is that seems very similar to this Dice of Fortuna case. Yeah. So I guess, it, why does it then seem so counterintuitive to us? Is there something about like, so we've thrown together both like the long causal chain and the intermediation by others and the unforeseeability of it. And like maybe all of these things together are just weakening the intuition that, that these actions are wrong. I mean, I'm curious to know, do many people encounter this and say, I actually find the paralysis thing kind of intuitive? Because I guess there's some sense in which it's intuitive that well, your actions are harming all of these people. Yeah. And like, so maybe you just can't, can't do all these things that you thought were totally normal. Well, yeah, from at least the viewers' comments, some people... One person. <laughs> one, one person. Yeah. You have an existence how, proof. How much? One, one out of eight of the editorial board have yeah. thought that. But uh, yeah, unfortunately, I think the viewers we've had have not really engaged with the thought experiment too. Like, do they say, no, there is some difference between yeah. the Dice of Fortuna case and the case of driving to get some milk? Or do they say in both cases, actually, it's permissible? Yeah. And uh, I really think they'll have to say in both cases it's permissible. Maybe is, it, is there any difference if it's like, if, if you shake the Fortuna thing, then it's like, then you can go to work. Then you can like do your normal day, day-to-day business. It's because there's a sense, it's like, if you say it's not, you're getting a dollar, but it's like now you're permitted to go and actually like live a normal human life, then maybe it seems more permissible. And like, and whenever you stop like shaking the box, like once now, now, now you just have to like stop moving. <laughs> that doesn't sound so good. But then it's like, now we've made it exactly the same as the other case. Yeah, if it's extreme enough, but it's not exactly the same because it's not one person. It's yeah. hundreds of thousands of people. Every time. <laughs> And every time, yeah. yeah. You know, perhaps you might think, well, there are some things that morality can't require of you. So mm. you might have the view, again, as a non-consequentialist, that morality just can never require you to sacrifice your life, no matter how great the stakes. Yeah. Okay, fine. But we were just talking about you doing the groceries. <laughs> <laughs> That's not, you know, if, 
if you're now at the stage where you're going to starve to death if you don't do the glows of these, okay, that, perhaps that that but that point it's permissible. Yeah, but you're the not vast majority of our actions are, you know, you know, driving to the cinema or something. So could could you get around this? Okay, so so the Janes just sit there until they die. I suppose another one would be to like try to totally causally cut yourself off from any other humans so like go and live as a hermit in the forest or like go go to siberia and then like try to make sure you have no interactions with other humans yeah so you could try and do that but the course of doing that you know buying all the canned goods um would itself involve you could think like this is the of harm yeah this is the least bad perhaps because it's like at perhaps. least once you manage to get far enough away then yeah it's, yeah yeah but it's, but it's the still, least long thing to do or it's the least prohibitive yeah anyway okay so i think there's at least one more attempted solution here, uh, which is maybe the one that I found the most intuitively appealing, which is that this it's Pareto acceptable to everyone yeah. ahead of time that you go to the shops. Yeah, because so- it's like everyone, like if you could survey everyone on earth and they said, well, do you personally prefer that the person not go to the, goes to the shops? Because it's like unforeseeable who's going to be benefited and who's going to be harmed. They would kind of, they would consent to it if you could ask them. Or it's yeah, like yeah. They, they, they don't see themselves as being worse off because of it. Yeah. Do you want to explain this one a bit more? Yeah. So I thought you explained it quite well. So in... Economics and philosophy, a Pareto improvement is where some people are made better off by election and no one is made worse off. An ex-ante Pareto improvement is where there's going to be some gamble. So perhaps everyone enters a lottery where it costs $1, but you've got a 50-50 chance of getting $10. Now, if 10 people enter that lottery, it's ex-ante Pareto Pareto improvement because everyone prefers that lottery to no lottery. But it does make some people worse off and some people better off, ex post. And when I drive to the shops, absolutely, everybody I affect, if I could ask them, do you care if I drive to the shops or not? Before they know what's going to happen, they would say, no, I'm indifferent because it's as likely that you will bring forward my death as you will postpone my death. So I'm just indifferent. So I'm indifferent for most people. And then you get a small benefit. You get the benefit of whatever you bought at the shops. So this is better for some people and worse for none. And I think this could be a way out, but it is itself going back on, it takes you quite a long step towards consequentialism hmm. is the key thing where- uh, now we've said if you cause harm, but it wasn't foreseeable that like a specific person ahead of time was going to be harmed and would have like told you not to do it, then it's yeah. okay. Yeah. Well, let's um, just consider some thought experiments. So suppose that the government is deciding is like, well, there's just this organ shortage. People are dying because they don't have kidneys. So what we're going to do is hold a lottery and people will be selected at random. They'll be killed. Their organs will be transplanted to save the lives of five other people. That's better from everyone's perspective. Extends everyone's life. I'm with you. (laughs) (laughs) I've signed up already. (laughs) But most people are not. But yeah, intuitively, from a non-consequential perspective, intuitively, that's that's wrong. It's impermissible. And in fact, going a little bit deeper... There's a theorem by John Hoshanyi, his aggregation theorem, which is that if everyone's well-being is structured in a way that satisfies some pretty uncontroversial axioms, and the way you aggregate satisfies ex ante perito, then you end up with utilitarianism. And so if you endorse ex ante perito as a non-consequentialist, you're not going to go all the way to consequentialism or utilitarianism, but you're going to get much, much closer, I think. Yeah. And so... Yes, this is a way out, but it is undermining a significant other commitment that the kind of paradigm non-consequentialist won't want to hold on to. Yeah. So this just uh, just reminded me, I think a c- couple of years ago, we were laughing at economists because so, so economists are obsessed, at least in some strands of thought, with 
with Pareto improvements. And like things aren't good unless they're Pareto improvements. Yeah. Which is basically, yeah. So, so everyone has to be either indifferent or better off from some, some, from some policy change or some uh, piece of behavior. But this is actually really stupid. It sounds, sounds good maybe at first blush, but in fact, it just means that basically no policy change is acceptable because like every policy change, whether it's like raising interest rates, decreasing interest rates, keeping interest rates the same, you know, raising taxes, lowering them, there's going to yeah. be like some person who's going to be worse off and would say that it's no good. So, so it basically means that like every policy change you could have and every indeed keeping the policy the same is like, yeah. is, is, is impermissible. And indeed, like even going out and buying things is no good because it'll be like the other people who would have wanted to buy the thing and like, and you drove up the price, yeah. they're yeah. worse off predicting ahead of time ex ante. So it's like, there's like no economic actions you can can take that actually is, or very few that would actually be uh, Pareto improvements. Yeah. So so this this, this is like funny obsession with that and then totally forgetting about it in the actual application. Yeah, absolutely. I I never really understood the economist, yeah, fixation with this. I mean, it's definitely, if you've got some distribution of well-being, then if there's any Pareto improvement, take it. That's always great. Great. Yeah. (laughs) But it's just almost, yeah. Well, yeah, it just almost never applies. But it is one of these things where it means you don't need to make comparisons between of well-being between people because if it's good for some people, not worse for anyone else, then uh, you know that it's a good thing to do. You know, an extra funny thing here is that uh, typically it seemed like they were concerned with ex ante radio improvements. So I'd have to think ahead of time is there's like someone who's foreseeably worse yeah. off. But it seems like if you're not willing to make interpersonal comparisons of utility, what actually matters is ex post Pareto improvement. So if anyone even, like if everyone expects to be better, but then like one person after the fact happens to be worse off, if you can't do interpersonal comparisons of welfare and like welfare was what you cared about, then uh, that could just invalidate the whole thing. So each person expects to have their welfare go up. Yeah. But then one person, so we're playing some kind of lottery here where it's like, Either your like welfare goes up ten, or it goes down uh, with like ninety percent probability, yeah, or it goes so- down one with like ten percent probability. So everyone's like in on this uh, gamble ahead of time because it raises their expected utility. Yeah. But then if like one person's welfare does go down one, yeah. and we're not willing to say whether that one for that person is like more or less than you know the hundred uh, points that was gained by other people, because we're yeah, just not willing yeah. to compare between people, then it seems like we just can't say whether it was an improvement or a worsening. Yeah. So it is the case that we know that either way it's not going to be better. In fact, it's neither better nor worse because we yeah. can't make the comparison. Yeah. It's kind of incomparable. So it's kind of strange where you're saying, yes, we should do action A over action B, even though I know that whatever happens for certain, action A is not going to be better than action B. Yeah. Nor is it going to be worse, nor is it going to be equally good. Yeah. So yeah, really, actually, it does seem like they're blurring together the argument for ex post Perito, where... I do have an ordering. I can say that some outcome is better than some other outcome. With a different view, which might be something like presumed consent, yeah. where if it's ex ante Perito improvement, you can appeal to the fact that, well, everyone would want it. And then you've got some extra principle where you say, if everyone would want this thing, then it's okay. if I could ask them, then it's okay. Yeah. But that's actually quite a different sort of justification from right. a purely yeah. welfareist one. Okay, yeah. let, let's come back to, to the paralysis <laughs> argument that paper. That was a big, big diversion. Yeah. Okay, so you think the Pareto argument is, is the most promising. What are the biggest weaknesses you were saying? Well, the biggest weaknesses are you just had to give up on other parts okay. of um, yeah. non-consequentialist commitment, like saying that, well, in general, just like policies that can be Pareto improvements that involve killing one person to save five and so on, involve you doing all sorts of horrible things. And that stuff might be okay too. That we, Yeah, that stuff would be okay too. So it would be a big move towards kind of more utilitarian consequentialist thought. 
So it seems like a, another angle that you thought people might make would be to try to play with the action emission distinction here to claim that like actually doing things, in fact, these are like not actions. Is that, is that right? Right. Yeah. So you could try and develop an account of the X emissions distinction where there are many, it's huge industry of <laughs> different accounts Yeah. such that all of these different like long run consequences you have are kind of emissions rather than actions. And one account that would make there be parity between, you know, me sitting motionless and me going and to the shops is Jonathan Bennett's account. The conclusion actually is that all of these consequences are actions. <laughs> so rather than there being some omission that I can do, such as sitting at home, not doing anything, such that that would, um, you know, not actively kill all these people in the future. Instead, it would be saying, well, that itself is an yes. action. Well, that seems right. Yeah. Well, it's tempting to say, well, just staying at home, that's an action too that like has benefited and harmed people. And the mere fact that you were like still doesn't really get you off the hook. So in fact, like everything is prohibited. There's no like one privileged thing that's an inaction. And, and, yeah. and so like maybe it all just cancels out. <laughs> that's right. So there's, that's the kind of Bennett-esque view where the idea is just something's an action if out of the space of all possible ways in which you could have moved. <laughs> it's quite a small portion of the space. Kind of specific. It's very specific. That's the, at least when you're explaining whether some event happened. Isn't any action going to be also like a very narrow range out of all of the things that you could do? Like including sitting still? Well, that's why you need this like explanation of an event. So let's say if you're- The simplest way of explaining the action is one that says- you did this specific thing rather than you didn't do some other thing. Yeah, the simplest way of explaining why the event happened. So if it, you're in this shallow pond and you're drowning, what are all the things I could do that would still result in you drowning? Well, I could dance. <laughs> I could give you the finger. I could, um, yeah. uh, you know, I could just walk away. There's like tons of actions that would still result in that consequence. I see. Whereas if there's it's strangling one, you, yeah. there's like a very narrow mm. range of actions that would result in that consequence. Yeah. Suddenly getting up and dancing would... Uh stop the strangling or like yeah. almost any other action would prevent me from being strangled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so, yeah, on this view, it is the case that now all your actions are causing huge amounts of harm. So you're actually in this kind of moral dilemma. Everything you do is in some sense very wrong, but perhaps the non-consequentialist can say, well, but that still doesn't mean that you should engage in paralysis. Perhaps you should just, you know, do the best thing, but because they're just, you know, they've still got the same ranking between actions even if all of those actions are inflicting huge amounts of harm. I mean, I do think the more natural thing to say would be just like, everything's wrong then. Okay, yeah. Um, you're, in, you're in a moral dilemma. Well, yeah, would any of them but, say everything is prohibited, but some things uh, still have better consequences? And so, but then I suppose then they're just back at consequentialism. Well, you could be a non-consequentialist and just deny the possibility of moral dilemmas. So you could just say, it's never the case that all your actions are wrong. There has to be at least one action that's the best you could do in the situation you were I given. See. So, you know, it's like Sophie's choice. You can either kill one child or your other child or both children. She's saying, it's oh, like, so there's degrees of prohibition perhaps. And then like some things will be less prohibited than others. And so that's the thing that you should do. Yeah. Or at least in any situation, if you do the least wrong thing, that's permissible. Fine. I see. Yeah. Okay. So that could be a way out. Um, Although then that might leave you with like a very narrow range of things that are permissible. If you're like, well, only the thing that's least prohibited is, is permissible. It's like, it's removing this like maybe nice appealing aspect of deontology in the first yeah, place. Exactly. It gives you like a greater freedom of action. You don't, you're not just obliged to do one single thing. Yeah, perhaps you have to be an altruist or something. Yeah, um, interesting. But then the second thing is that this account, Bennett's account, is normally criticized precisely because it makes 
inaction or being motionless too much like an action. Yeah, you've so, got this nice example where uh, that, that uh, loses its appeal. Yeah, exactly. So imagine, yeah, someone is just lying on a bed and daydreaming disinterestedly. And if just a little bit of dust kind of falls in this electrical circuit, it will set off some gadget that will kill somebody. But they just keep lying there. On Bennett's account, it would say, oh, well, that person, he killed. <laughs> mm. He killed the person who was killed by the gadget. But because the lying there was such a narrow range. Yeah, because if yeah, because if they'd done any action, would have changed the wind, the air currents, and would have resulted in the dust not landing on the electrical circuit, and the person wouldn't have been killed. But most people intuitively think, oh no, that's that is an inaction. That is doing an omission. And certainly intuitively, at where as well, it seems, you know, if I'm just staying home all day, there is something intuitive there where that's I'm acting less than. If I'm like going out into the world and like making all these changes, uh, yeah, I got to say, in that case, I do feel like the person who's just like lying still and allowing the dust to fall is like equally culpable as if mm. they'd like killed them. But maybe I'm just like the kind of person who's inclined to say that. That's I think not how most people would react. Yeah, I think it depends a bunch on whether like are they straining to like you know? Yes. Oh, okay. Go are on. they just doing it because this is like yeah, they're not even a- thinking about it very much, or are they like really trying? So like intention. Whether what someone's intending to do, I think, affects what our judgments are in these cases too. So I remember on the episode with Ophir Reich, we were both uh, saying that we like didn't really see any intuitive appeal about the like act emission distinction. We weren't like really sure that there was a meaningful distinction. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. I guess they're saying yeah. there's this like this whole cottage industry of trying to make sense of act and emission of like what the hell is an act? And, like, oh can, yeah, absolutely. How can something not be an act? That's so weird. Like even sitting still isn't that an act? Oh, that like, exactly. Yeah. Like, so, kind of yeah. When you have like so many papers trying to rescue this concept, you do have to wonder like maybe this concept <laughs> actually doesn't make any sense. Uh, yeah. But, well, I mean that's uh, it's an argument that's been made, which is just well. Try and analyze this. If you can, then, well, yeah, at best, you get something that's like this really kludgy looking, like really complex principle in a way that maybe you might be skeptical that it's really a a fundamental principle of morality. Yeah. So we've got this idea of like acting to harm people is bad. And then we're going to like have to create this big structure of what is an action, which is, I guess, explaining it is like some very narrow set of all of the actions that you could have taken, all of the movements that you could have done. Does that kind of then, does that carry the intuition for many people that that is what they meant by an action? And, and, and they really do think that whether something was like a narrow part of all of your space of options or not was the key to whether something was like a harm or? Yeah, so I think I'm worried that this is incorrect, but I think it's the case that Bennett, who creates this distinction, and I think you know, it's reasonably good as a analysis, then has the view well, if it's this, then obviously that's not morally important. Okay. All <laughs> um, oh, right. So actually does have the conclusion like, oh, well, now oh. we've analyzed it. We see that this just doesn't make much sense. There's other things that are important, like, you know, whether you intended to kill someone, that's important for punishment and so on, because I want to punish people who intend to kill others, but if it was an accident. And whether you intend to kill someone, well, good evidence for that is, did you take a particular course of action that is a very narrow narrow set of actions from the space of all possible behaviors you could have engaged in. Yeah, it seems like we should be able to contrive an example where it's like half of all of your actions would cause someone to die, and so it's not that narrow a set. And so in that case, you'd say, well, that wasn't an action, even though it's like well, something that's very foreseeable and you should just like not allow it to happen. Well, there's a famous case of an uncle who wants to kill their nephew, their baby nephew, because they'll get an inheritance by doing so. And two variants of the case. In the first case, the uncle comes in, 
and drowns the baby. In the second case, the uncle comes in, sees that the child has already actually slipped and is drowning, mm. and just waits over the child with their kind of hand, you know, ready in case the child like stops drowning, but then okay. doesn't need to, in fact, when <laughs> the child drowns. Yeah. And most people tend to think intuitively there's just no difference there. And that's another way of putting pressure on the idea that maybe the exhibition's distinction isn't actually the important thing here. Yeah, interesting. I think there's, yeah, one final way out for the non-consequentialist, which is that if your actions are doing enough good, where that might well be the case, if you're aiming to benefit the very long-run future, then plausibly that is permissible. So it might be that your options boil down to sitting at home (laughs) uh, or doing as little as possible, Mm. or instead going and trying to you know, make the long run future go as well as possible. Because then you're doing so much good as to offset the prohibition. That's right. So, you know, on the one side of the ledger, now I'm not driving just to get some milk, I'm driving to do some important altruistic Uh. thing. So negative is that you've, you know, killed hundreds of thousands of people. (laughs) The benefit is you also saved hundreds of thousands of people. And it's also you've not intended to kill those people. So it's not a classic case of harm, like, you know, literally killing one person to save five others or you know murdering someone you don't like and so there's yeah all the offsetting people that you saved and also potentially this astronomical amount of value or an astronomical amount of good that you're doing by engaging in long-termist activities how very convenient it's almost as if you were trying to aim to convince people of this all along (laughs) well i don't know what you're talking about um but i actually i mean i actually think that probably the non-consequentialist should either just take it as a challenge where they need to alter their account of acts and emissions mm. or yeah perhaps be willing to go one step in the direction of consequentialism and accept ex ante perito okay yeah makes sense it seems kind of whenever in moral theories you try to create kind of asymmetries or like non-linearities then you're at like risk of someone like pointing out this like odd case where that like produces super counterintuitive conclusions do, uh, do you think yeah. it's like a general thing uh yeah absolutely i mean it's quite striking in moral philosophy you know, how many people who are consequentialists are classical utilitarians, which in a sense is a very narrow range within consequentialism. And I think the underlying explanation is that for people who, as a matter of methodology, are sympathetic to the idea that, well, yeah, theories should be simple, but that means prefer, yeah, linearities rather than um, asymmetries and prefer kind of continuities rather than discontinuities. That same principle over and over again ends up leading you on a variety of issues to the to classical utilitarians. Yeah, interesting. Why, why, why classical? Or why, why focused on hedons rather than something else? Well, I think that in the case of hedonistic utilitarianism, you have a clear boundary between what things are of value and what things aren't, namely those things that are conscious. Okay. And that seems like a, you know, independently you would think that's like a pretty important dividing line in nature, yeah. the conscious things and the non-conscious things. From If you're a preference utilitarian, though, well, does a thermostat have a preference for being you know, above a certain temperature? What about a worm, a beetle? Where do you draw the line there? It's like very unclear. Similarly, if you're an objective list theorist, so you think um, flourishing and you know, knowledge. Uh, I mean, does a plant have knowledge? Like, it can, it can flourish, it has health. Why does that not count? And normally it's the case that you're inclined to say, oh, well, only only those entities that are conscious. Yeah. For them, then you should have 
you know, whatever satisfies their preferences or this thicker set of goods. But then we're more back at a hedonistic account or like, why don't we just say the whole thing was hedons all along? Yeah, exactly. Why is it this kind of weird disjunctive thing? Yeah. So so if you have consciousness, then a bunch of these like non-conscious facts matter. That's like less, that's like less intuitive than if like you have consciousness, then the consciousness matters. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Okay. So let's just talk quickly about this other paper you've been working on with Hillary Graves now called The Case for Strong Long-Termism. I guess, uh, We've talked about long-termism a lot on the show and no doubt it will come up again in future. So maybe we probably don't want to be rehearsing all these arguments again or our listeners will start falling asleep. But it says, yeah, is there anything uh, new in this paper that, uh, you know, people should maybe consider like reading it to, 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 to learn? Yeah. So I think the paper, if you're already sympathetic to long-termism, where, you know, we distinguish long-termism in the sense of just being particularly concerned about ensuring long-term, the long-term future goes well. You know, that's analogous with like environmentalism is the idea of being particularly concerned about the environment, liberalism being particularly concerned with liberty. Strong long-termism is the stronger claim that the most important part of our action is the long-run consequences of, our, of those actions. And the core aim of the paper is just being very rigorous in the statement of that and in the defense of it. And so for people who are already very sympathetic to this idea, I don't think there's going to be anything kind of novel or striking in it. The key target is just, well, what are the various ways in which you could depart from, you know, a standard utilitarian or consequentialist view that might you might think would cause you to reject long-termism, strong long-termism. And we go through various objections one might have and argue that they're not successful. Okay. Yeah, are there any kind of new counter-arguments in there to, to long-termism? I think... There's an important distinction between yeah, what philosophers would call axiological long-termism and deontic long-termism, where is long-termism a claim about goodness, about what the best thing to do is, or is it a claim about what you ought to do, what's right and wrong? So if you're a consequentialist, those two things are the same. That's, in fact, definition of consequentialism is that right. what's best is what's right. Yeah, okay. Oh, no wonder this distinction has never like, seemed that interesting. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah. But you, know, you might think... Um, Something could be good, but not required. Or- yeah, so... You know, perhaps it's wrong for me to kill you to save five, but I might still hope that you get hit by an asteroid and five are saved, okay. you know, because that would be bet- better for five people to live than one person to live. It's still wrong to kill one person to save five. So axiology is about like what things are good. And, axiology, uh, axiology, yeah. And the deontology thing is about like the rightness of actions. Yeah, normative theory or, or yeah, deontic theory. Okay. Yeah. And you distinguish between, so what's like, what, what's the two different long-termist things? So here? just axiological strong long-termism and deontic strong long-termism. And one of them, again, it's just about like consequences versus like what actions are right. Yeah, exactly. All right. So we'll stick up a link to, to that paper for anyone who, who wants to read it. Let's move on to another feistier paper that you've been working on with, in this case, one of the previous co-authors, uh, Hilary Graves and Andreas McGensen, called Long-Termism for Risk Aversion Altruists, which I guess is in this like long list of papers you're writing, which is like, make me feel like I was right all along. It's like, <laughs> these incredibly elaborate actual things you're going through to just like make me feel very smug about how I was on the ball early enough. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, we've really not been aiming to just write a lot of papers that are defending long-termism. It's meant to be, well... You know, every, we all know the, especially the total utilitarian case for long-termism, what happens if you mo- like modify some of these premises. And in some cases, you might think, oh, this really does make a difference. So risk aversion is one case. I think it's quite intuitive or certainly something people say, where let's say you're deciding between funding some existential risk reduction intervention or funding some global health program. And you might think, well, I know that I can do some amount of good 
when funding the global health program, where there's this existential risk thing, seems very uncertain. Maybe, yes, you might acknowledge, you think if you were successful, the consequences would be like really, really big and it'd be really great. But it's just so unlikely that, you know, I want to have a safe bet and I'm risk averse. Yeah, I got Uh, this exact objection in an interview a couple of months ago. And it's like, I mean, I tried to explain why it was uh, wrong, but it's like, it's not, not super easy in words. No, I mean, the, yeah, paper itself, even though it was, you know, the core of the paper came from me, I got asked about it in at Cambridge and I just, I was trying to explain it and I had to say, yeah, sorry, you're just going to have to look it up because I've, I've forgotten myself. <laughs> so right. it actually does get, yeah, quite, yeah, quite tricky quite quickly. So yeah. Okay, so it's kind of the, the setup here is that so there's some people doing something that seems like very reliable and safe, like distributing malaria nets. Yeah. And you've got these other people trying to like prevent nuclear war. Yeah. And there's this sense that in which it's, isn't it such a risky thing to do with your career to try to prevent nuclear war? Because you're almost guaranteed not to mm-hmm. succeed, whereas yeah. you'll distribute the bed nets and some lives will be saved. Yeah. Because on the other hand, you can flip it around and say, well, there's this other intuition that if you're like risk averse, well, shouldn't yeah. you be reducing big risks? Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. And then so we've got this like bit of a tension in the intuitions. And I guess here you try to like, uh, you yeah, know, define more rigorously risk averse about what? And then like, what does that actually lead to? Terrific. And so the first thing to distinguish is, is what I care about myself making a difference? Or is what I care about that good things happen? So if what I care about is myself making a difference, then absolutely. It's the absolutely standard account of that risk aversion would say that you prefer the, you know, the guarantee of saving one life. Let's say it's a 1% chance of saving 110 lives yeah. from the nuclear war example. Obviously, it's smaller probability of a larger amount of good. Yeah. However, as an altruist, should you care about that you make the difference? Yeah. And no, I think... Um, it's like, yeah, hundreds must die so that I can know that I made a difference. It's, uh, it's kind of the classic donor-focused altruism. Or- yeah, exactly. And I mean, it is quite an- antithetical to what effective altruism is about. I mean, in a previous, I think in Doing Good Better, I mentioned an example of, you know, a paramedic is coming to save someone's life. They're choking and, or something, they, or they're, you know, they need CPR. And you push, push them, them out, out of the way. way. And you, start, <laughs> you start making the difference yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, in order to make this clearer, just imagine... You're just going to learn about one of two scenarios. In the first scenario, some existential risk happens, but you save dozens of lives yourself. In the second scenario, no existential risk happens, and you don't do any good yourself. And you're just going to find out which of those two things are true. Which should you hope is the case? Well, obviously, you should hope no existential risk, and you not doing anything is the thing that happens. But if that's what your preferences are, then your preferences aren't about you yourself making the difference. In fact, what you actually care about is just good stuff. The world happening. goes well. Exactly. Yeah. Although I mean, you might say there's some trade-off where it's like people would be willing to accept a somewhat worse world in order to like have had a bigger impact themselves. I mean, maybe someone who might concede that they have some like selfish desire to like be able to reflect on their own life and feel proud about what they did, even if the world is worse. Okay, great. Yeah. So there's it could be that, yeah, you've got what we might call impure altruism. So if in part what's driving me is a meaningful life or something, and maybe that's tied to how much good I actually do. And there's diminishing returns to the meaning I get from doing more good. So a life where I've saved 10 lives is perhaps just as meaningful as a life where I've saved 100 lives or very almost as much. You know, then again, so then we're thinking get... about good done kind of like income or something like that. It's like, well, yeah, I, I exactly. want to make sure that I make like a decent amount of income. Yeah. And I want to make sure I do some amount of good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then again, you know, that is, I mean, again, I do want to say if people are going out and actually using their money for good things and they're like, yeah, well, it's a mix of motivations. I mean, it <laughs> that's that's like fine. It's yeah. for all of us, exactly. 
But if we're trying to defend this as, no, this is actually the altruistically justified thing, that's a different kind of- Or a moral um, philosophy. Yeah, yeah, if we're doing the moral philosophy thing, that's a different argument. Yeah, but then it seems like very hard to justify the idea that no, altruistically, what you should care about is how much good you personally do. Instead, what you should be caring about is just how much good gets done. Yeah. Is there anything that could be said in defense of that view from a philosophical stance? I, I suppose don't, non, non-realism, so. <laughs> nihilism, or just like giving up? I mean, well, then if it was just nihilism, then there's yeah, no right. There's yeah. no case where just you ought to do something. Doesn't so. matter. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's pretty hard to... I, I, I don't know anyone who def, who's defended it, for example. I see. Okay. So we're going to say, if what they were saying is that we're risk-averse about their personal, tangible impact themselves, uh, then yeah. we're going to say, well, that may, that's all well and good, but that's not actually something that's defensible in moral philosophy. Yeah. What about if they have a different understanding of risk-aversion? So they're okay. thinking something more about like risk-aversion about the state of the world, perhaps. Yeah. So now instead, and this is the perspective I think you should take as a philanthropist, is this impartial perspective. So you're just looking at different ways the whole world could go. And I'm now risk averse with respect to that. So for the whole world, I would prefer a guarantee of that world getting to, let's see, 100 levels of value, 100 units of value, whatever that unit is, rather than a 50-50 chance of 210 units of value and a 50% chance of zero units of value. And that's, again, a perfectly coherent view. It's not utilitarian view, but it's perfectly coherent. And there's a couple of different ways you could cash it out. So you could say that, well, that's because value has diminishing returns. So just in the same way as money has diminishing returns for you, somehow total amount of value it also has diminishing returns. Hmm. That's like, people often don't like to say that. I mean, it has some odd consequences because then it's like if there's a flourishing alien civilization somewhere far away, then it's like, I guess the world matters less because it's like they've added all this welfare to the universe. And so like yeah. now all of our actions have just become less morally significant. It's kind of... Yeah, I think that that's very intuitive. That's like, yeah. So it's um technical term for this is that it's non-separable. Mm. So in order to decide what I ought to do, I need to know not just about the thing that's right in front of me, but also just how many aliens are there? How many yeah. people in the past? That, um, yeah, people. Yeah, so you, it's like you might find that there were more people in the past and this should, makes you then more risk averse or something. Oh, yeah, or, make or, you take action, actions that are, yeah. Yeah, it would make you take actions that are more risk averse seeming. Yeah. yeah, I guess it depends on the shape of the risk averse curve, but yeah. yeah. So that's one thing you can do. I mean, but more promising is a different decision theory, which just cares about risk. So again, I'm going to hope, hope I'm going to cite this correctly, but I think it's rank dependent utility theory by Quiggin, and then a view that is formally the same, but with a different philosophical interpretation, which is Lara Buchak's risk-weighted expected utility theory, where the idea is just you care about risk. And so each little increment of probability onto a possible outcome doesn't count the same. So perhaps you take the square of the probability when you multiply that by an outcome. But here again, you don't necessarily end up with the conclusion that, well, you should prefer the the bed nets over the preventing nuclear war. And that's because, yeah, there's two kind of sources of uncertainty that go into whether you're going to do good by trying to prevent a nuclear war. Like there's two ways you can fail to do that, to have an impact there. One is if there was never going to be a nuclear war. In fact, we were going to achieve this glorious future, whatever you did. A second way in which you could fail is if there was going to be a nuclear war, but your actions are ineffective towards it. And if you're just a standard expected utility maximizer, that difference doesn't matter at all. But it does, surprisingly, if you're risk averse. 
And the way to see that is because supposing we get to this glorious future, you know, future's really, really good. And then it also has this excellent benefit, which is that, you know, someone's life in a poor country was saved. Well, you're adding a bit of good onto what's already an extremely good outcome. And so that doesn't contribute very much. Ah. Okay, yeah. Nice. Um, I, well, I haven't read this paper, listeners. But you can tell, perhaps. I thought Rob was faking it. <laughs> no. you, looked so, you looked so interested. No, I, just, uh, now it's like the penny slightly dropped there. Okay, uh, and I thought you were just like, stop acting or not. <laughs> um, You'd never be able to tell, Will. Yeah. Um, whereas if instead what's that happening is that we're almost certainly doomed and it's just that you could make the difference, mm. then... When you add that little bit of benefit, you're actually adding on to, you know, a bad world where we have very little, you know, very little total value. And that contributes a lot. And so it's more valuable to save the life in the case where extinction is highly probable because the world as a whole is worse. And so like saving that person's life, like is adding yes, more exactly. moral value in some sense. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Okay. And then how does that play out? I guess this is seeming like it's going to be a bit complicated math here to like see exactly what this pans out to. So yeah, it means that because in any realistic situation, if I'm unsure about whether I'm going to have an impact by trying to prevent a nuclear war, I'm going to be unsure for both reasons, both because maybe there's just not going to be a nuclear war, but also maybe anything I do is going to be ineffective. And we do do a little bit of just maths. Throwing to in see, some plausible numbers. Throwing some plausible numbers. So if you have quite extreme risk aversion, which is where rather than multiplying probability of an outcome by its value to contribute to expected value, you take the square of the probability and multiply by a value. So that's actually quite an extreme risk averse view. Then if you think it's more than 50% likely that we'll get uh, some you know, really good future, if you're risk averse, that ends up favoring extinction risk reduction. Huh. But yeah, so it does end, but it isn't striking that risk aversion, yeah, can make you favor the nuclear war. And then one thing I should say on this is that this has all been premised on the idea that the future is just either neutral in value, you know, if we continue to exist, go into the future, it's either neutral or positive. Neutral or positive. It seems like it should be stronger if, but if, if we, if we include the possible negative outcomes, the case for risk aversion caring about long termism gets stronger. But doesn't that make the like saving, so in as much as there's a possibility that the world as a whole is just really bad, then doesn't that make like the incremental benefit of like saving one person's extra life like, oh, yeah. more valuable? Because oh, I suppose yeah, it depends on whether it the does. distinctions then between like the best and worst case that you could try to bring about in the long term is like very large. Yeah. So if it was the case that you're just now concerned about either reducing extinction risk or saving someone from malaria, then you're right that that increment of benefit would count for more if we're in this terrible world in the future. And so that probably will favor, that will favor bed nets over reducing extinction risk for sure. But there's something else you could probably do, which is try and reduce the chance of terrible futures, yeah. <laughs> which is still the long-termist thing to do. And that's going to be overwhelmingly important, like any tiny decrease in variance of the value of the future or decrease of the worst worst case scenario is yeah. going to be overwhelmingly important and more important the more risk averse you are. I see. Okay, so 
this actually wasn't the argument that I, for example, made when I was asked this question a couple of months ago. Uh, okay, the, the reason that I gave uh, for saying that risk aversion doesn't favor you know, uh, the bed net distribution was just that this person is ignoring almost all of the effects of the actions. And so oh. they're saying, so, so they're thinking like, oh, it's like safe because I just like saved a few lives. But if, you, if they think about all of the you know, ripple effects, all of the long-term indirect effects of that action, then in fact, like what they've done is just incredibly unpredictable. And maybe it has like very good effects or very bad effects. In fact, it's a very risky action in a sense just as like trying to prevent nuclear war is very risky because there's like such a high chance that you'll fail and there's a, well, then there's a chance you'll have a big benefit. Yeah. Did, did you see where I'm going with that? So I think when I heard you say that, it was, I remember thinking it was just this, you know, the argument or response that I would also make. But I think it's a different issue. So because the nuclear, you know, trying to reduce nuclear war also has all of these like long run unpredictable effects. Yeah. So they both are risky in that sense. Something, yeah, it's like, whether they create good or bad outcomes for both of them is extremely hard to foresee. And like, there's a huge distribution. And so they're both like, they're both very risky. And it's not the case that one is like less yeah. risky in that sense than the other. And so that kind but, of cancels out. So just go for like the highest expected value. Well, I was saying they're both, they're both very risky, but I think you can still say that. So let's say there's the foreseeable effects and the unforeseeable effects. The foreseeable effects are one life saved versus, you know, one in a million chance of huge value. And then you can say, well, there's a certain amount of riskiness that comes from the unforeseeable effects. Those are you know, the same from the nuclear war or from the bed net distribution. But then we can just isolate the foreseeable effects, which are you know, less risky for the... Yeah, isn't there a sense in which like the work on the nuclear war thing is like less risky? Because it's like there's a 999, 999 out of a million chance that you're going to accomplish nothing, that nothing will happen. And so... But you wouldn't for any given action you won't accomplish nothing. You'll have all of these unpredictable effects. Yeah. Maybe I'm just not thinking about this, right? But it seems like that kind of cancels out to me. But I guess you're saying that the well, unpredictable effects are even larger in the, in the nuclear case. So, Well, no, I'm saying for both the bed net case and the nuclear case, for anything we do, no matter what pans out, yeah. we've got the stream of unpredictable effects. Yeah. And let's say we don't have any reason for thinking that there are going to be more or higher variance unpredictable yeah. effects from bed nets than nuclear. So... In all cases, we have this stream of unpredictable effects. And then no matter what way the world is, we get like plus one benefit of life saved from bed net distribution across all different possible states. In the nuclear war case, we get the like plus a million right. in or the nothing. one in a million case and zero and all yeah, um, I see. and all okay. the others. And that yeah. does that is just strictly adding. I see. Yeah, maybe there's a sense in which, like, given it with so much uncertainty or so, such a wide distribution to begin with, like the incremental uh, riskiness or the incremental like variance that's added by the the foreseeable effects, like, doesn't feel as large. Is that maybe that's something that's going on? Yeah, I'm now trying to remember exactly what the question asked was because it was, yeah, I mean, it seems you know if the argument is oh well I want to do what I'm confident does good, which is actually you know I said I've been cashing out the underlying intuition in one way yeah. which is in terms of risk aversion but yeah if it instead it's no i want to do something where i know i'm going to do good well then that argument doesn't work because it's, it's there's a high chance that they would do harm accidentally yeah exactly there's just so many effects and you know picking one of them is just not you know picking out one aspect does not reduce the uncertainty very much at all and that does actually i think that's intuitively quite important like perhaps also from a non-consequentialist perspective as well where you know, we are responsible for all of those effects. <laughs> and actually, you know, if we're just saying, well, yes, we care about the long run future, we hope it goes well, 
we yeah, and yes, also these activities that have short run benefits will have very long run effects. But no, I'm not going to worry about that. That seems yeah, that seems long. All right, let's push on to this very interesting and kind of provocative blog post you wrote on the Effective Altruism Forum back in September called uh, Are We Living in the Most Influential Time in History? Yeah, in the post you laid out, uh, I guess, a bunch of arguments both in favor and against the idea that we're living at a particularly important time in history. And I guess kind of ended up concluding that people might, at least in the Effective Altruism community, might be really overestimating the, the chance that this particular century is especially important in the, in the scheme of things. Yeah. So I thought this post was one of the best posts that's been put on the Effective Altruism Forum. Uh, Thank not, you. Not, not, <laughs> not to flatter you too much, Will. But in addition to that, I thought the comments section was amazing. There was like, you know, just half a dozen comments. And I'm like, these could be like posts in their own right. And it's like lots of, they're very thick with, with new insights and then great responses. And people also being extremely polite as well, even though they were, they were disagreeing quite strongly. Yeah, I loved it. I was really yeah. happy I managed to get Toby at the woodwork and, <laughs> you know, Carl too. So. Yeah. So I guess this is a pretty convoluted issue. We might, we might get a little bit tangled up, but I guess it would be good to, I guess, talk about what you present in the post and then maybe work through some of the like top comments that I thought were, were also very insightful. And I guess, yeah, what, how you respond to that and where things stand now. That sounds great. Maybe first, what do, what do you, you mean by like the most influential time in history? And why does this question matter? I do think I'm running together two slightly different ideas that I think um, it is worth picking apart. And if I wrote the post again, probably I would. So one is just in some intuitive sense of importance. Don't even really need to define it. But on certain views that are popular in the effective altruism community, like the Boston Yukowski view, or scenario that's closely associated with them, I don't want to claim that they think it's very likely. On that view, there's a period where we develop artificial general intelligence that moves very quickly to superintelligence. And either way, basically everything that ever happens is determined at that point, where it's either the values of the superintelligence that then, you know, it can do whatever it wants with the rest of the universe, or it's the values of the people who manage to control it, which might be quite, might be democratic, might be everyone in the world, might be a single dictator. And so I think just very intuitively, if, sounds important. <laughs> sounds important. Intuitively, <laughs> that would be the most important moment ever. Yeah. And in fact, it's two claims. One is that there is a moment where almost everything happens, <laughs> you know, where most of the variance of how the future could go actually gets determined by one very small period of time. And then secondly, that that time is now. So one line of argument is just to say, well, it seems like that's a very extraordinary claim. We could, you know, try and justify that. You know, then there's a question of, like spelling out what extraordinary means. But insofar as that would be a very extraordinary claim, we should have low credence in it, unless we've got very strong arguments in its favor. Then there's a second argument or second understanding of influential that is, it's very similar, but again, different enough that maybe it's worth keeping separate, which is just the point at which it's best to, to directly use our resources, if we're long-termist, where that's just... How does the marginal cost effectiveness of long-termist resources vary over time is the question. And here, again, the thought is, well, we should expect that to go up and down over time. Perhaps there are some systematic reasons for it going down. Perhaps there are some systematic reasons for it going up. Either way, it would seem surprising if now was the time where long-termist resources are, are most impactful. And what that question is relevant to is that it is one part of but not the whole of an answer to the question of should we be trying to spend our money now doing direct work or should we instead be trying to save for a later time period, whether that's financial savings or movement building. 
So I guess we can imagine centuries where I suppose they're like very intuitively important, but they are not important in the second sense because, say, there was nothing that could be done. So a lot of uncertainty gets resolved, but like an extra person couldn't have made any difference. Say maybe we're like definitely going to use a random number generator to determine the future and there's nothing you can do to stop that from happening. So a lot of uncertainty is resolved when like the random numbers are generated. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Or the second thing, as well as just maybe no one could do anything about it, on the second definition, I also build in that maybe we just don't know what to do. We're just not reliable enough. Mm. So perhaps the turn of the agricultural evolution, perhaps there were certain things you could have done that in would have principle. had, in principle, that would have had a very long run influence. But no one at the time would have been able to figure that out. Yeah. So the argument would go. So, so On that second sense, then, I would not count that as being influential either. Okay. And so in the post, you use the term hinginess, I guess, yeah. to describe this second second sense of importance, where it's like a person can make a big difference if they act at that time. But you haven't used that word yet. Is that because you're reluctant to kind of uh, pin people onto this terminology that maybe we want to get rid of? Yeah, I think we haven't decided on terminology now. Carl, in one of the comments, Carl Schulman, objected to the term hinginess because perhaps it's quite, it just sounds a bit goofy, I guess. And so instead, perhaps we should say leverage or something. Okay. Um, Pivotalness or pivotality? Pivotality. Yeah. yeah. Pivotality means that doesn't really get across the idea that, well, maybe we are at a really pivotal time. We just don't know we are, just aren't able to capitalize on that. Okay. All right. So to avoid, I guess, like entrenching some language, maybe we'll just use importance in this case to describe the time when one extra person can make the biggest difference uh, for this conversation. Okay. Because I think we need yeah. like some, yeah, yeah, some sure. word to yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, so yeah, on quite a lot of well, quite a lot of different people have thought that it could be the case that this century could well be one of the most important in that sense. I guess like, yeah, Toby Ord is like about to publish this, this book, kind of making that claim. I guess yeah. Derek Parfitt has kind of uh, suggested yeah. that might be the case. So, I mean, there's... It's not only, I guess, people in effective altruism. Lots of other people make the kind of the argument that this century could determine everything. It's like, you know, climate change, war between the US and China, we have nukes now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like there's some sense in which it's kind of intuitive. Yeah, do you want to lay out, I guess, like the, the arguments both in favor and, and against the hypothesis that the next hundred years is going to be especially important or, or, or an especially good time to, to act to change the long term? Yeah, terrific. And yeah, one clarification I'll make as well is that this is not an argument for saying, for example, that existential risk is low. So the argument from Parfit and Sagan and others is, well, we've developed nuclear weapons. That's ushered in a new time of perils where existential risk is much higher. I could actually take objection to the argument from nuclear weapons, but I'll put that to the side. We'll come back to that. Coming back to that. Um, But this would not be a particularly exceptional time if existential risk goes up and then stays up for the very long time for many, many millennia or something. Or if it went up, and went up even further. Or it goes up and there's nothing anyone can do. Or if it goes up and there's nothing anyone could do would also be the case. Mm. So it needs to be the case for this to be a particularly influential time. And Parfit calls it the hinge of history. That's why hinginess has yeah. come up. It needs to be the case that reducing existential risk is particularly high leverage now compared to other times. And so I give, yeah, a couple of arguments against this. One is that... Well, just on priors, we should think it's extremely... Again, especially if we assume, you know, if we're successful, there will be a very large future, very large, extremely large numbers of people in the future. Then it would be really remarkable, you know, a priori would seem like extremely unlikely that we happen to be the people of all this time that are so influential, you know, are in fact the most influential people ever. Secondly, then, is, well... How good is the quality, if we've got this kind of low starting prior, 
how good is the quality of the evidence to move us from that? And there, there's kind of two arguments, two like related issues. One is just what you might intuitively understand as the like quality of the arguments, where it's not like we have empirical observations for this. It's not like we have deep like understanding of some like physical mechanism that should really you know allow us to update very greatly. Instead, it's kind of generally going to be informal arguments, informal models of how the future will go. Then combined with the fact that I think we shouldn't really expect ourselves to be particularly good at or particularly reliable at reasoning about things like this. We certainly don't have positive evidence for thinking that people can reason well about something like this. And that then makes it hard if you've got this very low prior to have some correspondingly large Bayes factor that is kind of update on the basis of argument that would move us to having, say, a 10% credence or more that we're living at the most influential time ever. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so to recap that, you're saying the future could be very long. So there's like a lot of potential future people, lots of potential future centuries. What are the, like, what are the odds that this one happens to be the most important out of all of them? Seems like it should just be, we should guess that it's low unless we have really good reasons to think otherwise. And then you're like, well, but, and do we have this really strong evidence? It's like, well, we do see, we do have a bunch of arguments for this, but they're not so watertight that we couldn't explain them seeming compelling to us as just being an error on our part. That in fact, it like seems like this century is especially important, but that's just an illusion because we're not very good at reasoning about this. Yeah. And we always have this alternative, very plausible alternative explanation whenever it seems like we've made a good argument that this century is particularly important, that we just don't know what we're talking about and we're just mistaken. That's right. And when you've got, so if you've got a starting very low prior and then some even somewhat unreliable mechanism to move you from that prior, well, you don't end up moving very much because rather than you being at this extremely unlikely time, it's much more plausible kind of mundane explanation that actually just we've made some mistake along the way. Yeah. So, you know, I give an example of, well, supposing I deal a pack of cards out and you see a particular sequence. If it's just a kind of random seeming sequence, you should update all the way from 1 in 52 factorial, which I think is like 1 in 10 to the 68 or something, all the way up to high credence in that. That's amazing. So you really can make huge updates some very low priors. But if I deal a set of cards in perfect order, you should conclude that, well, probably the pack of cards was not well shuffled to begin with. Probably <laughs> yeah. it wasn't shuffled, in fact. Yeah. So you kind of question the underlying starting assumptions. Yeah. You've slightly jumped the gun here, though. So what are the, what are the object-level arguments that people make that this century is, is especially important? So we can maybe like assess, yeah, do we have a really good, good grip on them? Are they compelling evidence? Uh, great. So I think there's two different sets. So I, I um, distinguish between inside-view arguments and outside-view arguments. And the inside-view arguments are, for example, the view associated with uh, most prominently with Boston Yukowski, but more widely promoted, that we will develop AGI at some point this century, and that's the most pivotal event ever. Perhaps because AGI very quickly goes to superintelligence, whoever controls superintelligence controls the future. A second way in which the present time might be particularly influential is if we're at this time of perils. So we're now at the point in time where there's sufficient destructive power that we could kill ourselves, as in render humanity extinct, but before the time where, you know, we get our act together as a species and are able to coordinate and reduce those risks down to zero. So that's, those are two, I call them inside views. The distinction isn't necessarily very tight. Then there are a bunch of outside view arguments too. So again, let's just assume that the future is very large, or at least if we're successful, the future is very large in the sense that there's lots of future. 
you know, vast numbers of people in the future? Well, we do seem to be distinctive in lots of ways then. We're very early on. We're in a world with a very low population compared to future populations. We're still on one planet. We're still we're at a period in time where some people are aware of long-termism, but not everybody, which is a kind of Goldilocks state, you might think, for having an influence. So here are a whole bunch of reasons why, you know, even without considering any particular arguments, your prior shouldn't be extremely low. It should be kind of considerably higher. And on that latter side, so one bit of confusion, I think, in the discussion was what exactly we were using the word prior to refer to, where I'm referring to your ur prior, your fundamental prior when we do that. So that's and like so, before you've opened your eyes, before you've seen kind of anything. What's yeah, like, before I'm even aware that I'm on Earth. Or, yeah. <laughs> um, I just, it's, I mean, the way I was thinking about it, it's a function from if I believe that there's going to be a billion people in, like ever, then I believe there's one in a billion chance of being the most influential person. Similarly, if I believe there's going to be 100 trillion people, I'll, I believe there's a one in a 100 trillion chance that I'm the most influential person. But then the way I would understand it is I open my eyes, I see that I'm on Earth and so on. And absolutely, I should update a lot in favor of being at a particularly influential time. Oh, another key thing is being at a period of unusually high economic growth, where I think there's very good arguments why we can't have... Can't sustain it forever. Yeah. Because eventually too, we'll run out of just atoms. Yeah, you end up having like a civilization's worth of value for every atom. Yeah. And maybe it's the case that, you know, we're just... Our imagination is failing us there. But uh, <laughs> I find it pretty compelling that that's... Not we can't grow at 2% yeah. per annum. The environmentalists uh, are right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they they are in the sense that it's an yeah. S-curve at some level of scale. Yeah, it has to stop at some point. And then some people are saying, well, the what I had, which is the uniform prior, that is... For any total population over the universe, I should think it's one over n, where n is the number of people, chance that I'm the most, <laughs> you know, the most influential, but also the funniest, the most beautiful, etc. They instead say, well, no, you should have some prior where earlier people are more likely to be influential or, you know, other kind of models that um, would give a different kind of result. And I'm, you know, I agree that we should have degrees of belief in those models, you know, the language I used was such that that would count as an argument for moving from your prior, but its uh, I don't actually think much hangs on what word we use there. Yeah, okay. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack here. But just, but just first to give like a, a general objection maybe to like the style of argument that's being made here. So we look around, we see all of these reasons why it seems like this century would be really important. And you said, no, but we should have this prior, this like pre-existing belief that it's exceedingly improbable that this century is the most important. So there's only a one in a million chance because there could easily be a million centuries to come. I mean, you're just going to have this uniform prior across them. So there's something that's kind of arrogant about saying that this century is going to be the most important, like I'm living at the most important time. It's kind of suspicious. But there's also something that's kind of suspicious and arrogant about being like, well, I like, I just know from priors, like before I've even looked at anything, it's like I'm almost certain that we're not at the most important time and like none of these things that you can say to me, no matter, like even if I'm like in the room we're about to start a nuclear war, they're about to press the button. I'm just like, no, no, it's like I still don't think because my prior is so low, I just, oh. I'm going to think that this is probably a hallucination. It kind of it but, reminds me of the presumptuous philosopher uh, hmm. argument that people make about, you know, it was Nigga Bostrom and the, yeah. Uh, yeah. But having an extremely low prior doesn't mean that you can't update to high credence. That's like my kind of deal quite of... hard, potentially, especially if you're going to say, well, there's this alternative explanation that I'm just like, you know, maybe I'm schizophrenic and maybe I'm just like misperceiving things and I have delusions of grandeur. It's going yeah. to make it always very hard. I think we regularly update from astronomically low priors to high credence kind of all the time. So yeah. I gave you one example, which was dealing a pack of cards, 
where you know your player is one in fifty-two yeah. factorial. It's can really make a very big low. update. Yeah, but in this actual case, like in this in this scenario of saying like, is this the most important century? But then, but then it's quite unsurprising if you're saying, well, I'm now like sampling <laughs> out of you know, let's say it's a million centuries, yeah. and you only get a thousand. <laughs> or even less, but yeah, let's say like a thousand out of this whole huge distribution, then it's not very surprising, I think, if we just can't ever get to extremely high. Because you're like, there's all these things in the future that we just have no clue about. Yeah, I guess. So I think that it is very suspicious to have so much work being done just by like the prior that we've chosen to use, especially given like how unsure we are about like what prior, like how how we ought to select these priors or priors in general. Hmm. Uh, And then I guess like when we actually dive in, it seems like then this suspicion about like you can really can, can so much be work be, be getting done by the prior is kind of vindicated because I think we see a bunch of reasons in these like that, that are offered uh, that maybe we should talk about now uh, mm. by, by Toby and Carl that give us good reasons to think that no, we should, should use a different prior which gives us like a much higher like it makes it seem much more realistic that this century is especially important. Yeah I mean I definitely just to clarify like you know you find yourself you're now president of the United States and it's like okay we built the AGI lab and yeah. now it's like code in. <laughs> okay. Yeah I don't think you should well Depends on your antecedent credence that you're hallucinating or something. Yeah. But let's assume it's very low, mm. or that you're in a simulation that's very low. Then you know, I don't. Then that's extremely strong evidence. I see. Okay. But that's not the set of evidence that we have. I think. Okay. So you think the evidence is, that we have is way weaker than that. I suppose maybe, maybe some people would disagree. They'd say no. It's like the evidence well, that we see is almost as compelling no, as but, that. Okay. But this is why I was really happy I wrote the post because I thought that was the case. Ah, okay. I thought that's where the disagreement between me and some others w- lie. Yeah. But actually, it seems like it wasn't. And said it's, about it, the, it's about the prior? Or, no. Yeah, Toby seemed to think, well, the prior we should, or the prior he suggested would give like a, I don't know, 5%, 10% kind of prior that this is the most important ever. Yeah. And that was, um, that was striking for me. But whereas I thought other people would say, no, it's just this group. There's amazing evidence. That, okay. But right, maybe let's, let's move on to yeah, the, what yeah, I called characterized as the outside view okay. arguments. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's go for that. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe another way, insofar as this caused a bit of confusion, I would perhaps figure out some way of rewriting the article so that people focused a bit less on the choice of kind of uniform prior, because I do think that... This is a separate question. Well, yeah, so we're in this weird position. It, like, assume the future is very big. We're definitely in this weird position in a variety of ways. And then the key question really is like, how exactly do you kind of update on the basis of that? And I really think like, if your kind of prior is one in a million or one in a billion or one in a trillion, doesn't like actually make that much of a difference because you get a correspondingly large update uh, in virtue of being very early on. Okay, yeah. Or also like very early on. And then there are all these things that are correlated, being early on, being small population, being on a single planet, being at, perhaps being at a period of high economic growth is, a, is, is separate as, a, as an argument. And so then we got into some meaty discussion of, well, how should one be setting priors in that context? And so Toby's suggestion was to use Laplacian law of succession, or actually the Jeffries prior. But um, the idea here is, so in the classic law of succession, there's a question of, well, what's the chance that the sun doesn't rise tomorrow? This is an event you've never seen happen. But let's say you've seen it rise a thousand times. What should you believe the chance of it rising tomorrow is. You might think, oh, well, it's never happened out of a thousand times, so it's zero out of a thousand. So zero chance, but it doesn't seem right. So it's basically just the way it works for Laplace is to assume that 
before we ever started this kind of period of observation, the there were two observations, one of which came out positive. <laughs> so in this sounds weird because in this case, the positive thing is the sun not rising. So just as the set of Plyo, we act as if there were two days, it rose on one day and it didn't rise on another day. The Jeffries Plyo is just slightly different where it's just half a day each. <laughs> uh, so it's a little less conceptually clean, but mathematically fine. And then Toby says, well, that's how we should think about whether we're at the most important time ever. You know, we should think of living at the hinge of history as being like this event that could happen at any time. We start with this Laplacian plier, and then that, when you do the maths, ends up giving you a conclusion that, given that we haven't seen it in yeah, the thousand centuries so far, you end up concluding it's like a 5% chance. I think that's about right, that we're in the most important century now. So I thought that it would, so it's like the first century, if, if you find yourself in the first century, then you're like, oh, it's a one in two, and then the next yeah, century it's a right. one in three, and then the next right, century yeah. it's one in four, and then yeah, it just yeah. keeps on keeps on going. And so, but if it's been 100 centuries, wouldn't that get you to much less? Time? Oh, sorry, yeah, no. Yeah, so if it's just done in time, then it would be, yeah, one in 2,000 that it's now. Yeah. Uh, if it's done uh, by population, by population mm. then it's much higher. Because we think uh, something because, like 5% of all people who've ever lived are alive now. Yeah, in fact, it's a little more than that, yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure whether I want to go down this track, but one of many things that I'm nervous about in this whole area is that we're talking about like sampling out of the set of all humans. And just like, how do you define humans? Because like species are constantly evolving. We've taken this, oh, like yeah. what might be well, a very practical, like biological thing. And then now we're trying to make like real inferences about like the future of the world by like species differentiation over time. Is, is there something very suspicious about that? It's like... Yeah, I mean, I think that is one argument that I think favors my yeah, um, no, that does fire over because then it seems more Toby's arbitrary, player. maybe. Well, like, oh no, well, there's just like, what's the chance I'm the most influential mammal. person? Oh, what's okay. the most chance the most influential mammal? Yeah. Like, as in, most what's the chance I'm the most? Let's use a different term that's yeah. less loaded, but like, what's the chance I'm the most beautiful human? Yeah. Well, one in you know however many humans there. Are. Yeah. What's the chance that I'm the most beautiful mammal? Well, one again for players, one out of all the mammals that are. <laughs> that just kind of seems light to me as the way of setting in this context uh, but if okay. you're thinking of the start of humanity as like this event for how long humanity will last for or mm. something then yeah with the Laplacian player it really matters when the start date is because you know your player's 50 yeah. 50 that that's the yeah, year yeah, yeah. when everything happens yeah it's interesting but yeah I, I guess and if I'd said yeah if the question was just is this the most important century in all human history if instead the question had been, oh, is this the most important century in the history of life? Which, again, I mean, maybe maybe there you could make more of an, an argument that, like, the move from prokaryotes to eukaryotes was as well, important as just the, the move first from... self-replicating RNA. Sure, that's the most important. Like, the, the fact that it happened at all. Like, yeah, yeah, that would be... Important. Yeah. I mean, but, but, hold on, I mean, but then that's... But why are you assuming that the most important century for humans hasn't already happened? It seems, like, very possible that that has happened. Oh, like, yeah. yeah. Well, Toby, yeah. yeah. Um, and by when you said you, you meant... Toby. Oh, okay, right. Because <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not a fan of this way of player setting. But yeah, so Toby would have to make the claim that, well, we've observed over time that it hasn't happened yet. But um, it is actually from, from his player, he should think it's... it's that's extraordinarily on, surprising that it hasn't... It's really actually happened. extremely likely that it is in the past. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there is a good which, chance that, that it is. It seems like we can point to like various times that were like the most... Yeah. Especially important. The key... But, well, yeah, I guess the key question there is whether people were in a position to do anything, like uh, okay, people yeah. were really in a position to judge. I and see. I think you can kind of, it's a bit of a tricky thing about this whole discussion is, well, what exactly is the counterfactual that you're asking? But I try and 
yeah, where I suggested like, well, a long, imagine a long-termist altruist. So I'm allowing them to miraculously have the set of values, but nothing else changes. What could they have done? Yeah, interesting. Okay. So what is the intuition that Toby has for like using that prior in particular? Well, I'm probably going to do a very poor job of defending it. I see him really as making, actually just making a judgment about a different claim, which is, well, what's the probability that some arbitrary event happens that has never happened before, like extinction of the human race or something? Then at least I can start to get some, yeah, some okay. reason for thinking like so that. So that actually does, does make sense. Okay, so so yes. some, somehow we just know that we're in the first century of humans, and then you're, yeah. uh, and, and we also know nothing about like the the general rate of species extinction. Yeah. So we're like, what's the odds of extinction this century? Well, given that we know nothing, I guess it's 50-50. That's yeah. like, yeah. that's yeah. just the uniform prior. It's yeah, like, is exactly. it, well, like ignorant prior. Yeah. And then it's like the next century, like, okay, well, we haven't seen it last century, so what are the odds now? So I guess yeah, it's, it's got to go down yeah, how much. Yeah. And so, yeah, this like Laplacian thing is, I think, what you get if you have a uniform prior between zero and one. Yeah, uh, exactly. On that, yeah, uh, to, yeah to start sorry, with. exactly, yeah. Okay, and the so, Jeffy's so the intuition. The Jeffy's pie is kind of bucket shaped. So think about the uniform pie and then just reduce the middle and yeah. increase the outside. And the argument for the Jeffy's pie is that it's scale invariant with respect to the parameter. All right. So so Toby wanted to, to use this Laplacian player or yeah, Jeffrey's prior, which I guess would then make it much more easy to believe that this uh, century is especially important. Carl had this other great comment, which I think pointed out like specific reasons why we might think that it's way more likely that the most important century out of all human history or all, you know, history of like agency life would come much earlier, uh, which yeah. I found very persuasive. And I think that like, maybe should cause us to think that maybe actually Toby is right, that if it's not, it, maybe it's not exactly that, but yeah. it should be a prior that like is much more uh, weight to early centuries and makes yeah. us much more willing to believe that this century is especially important. Yeah, yeah. I guess I should note uh, here, where technically we only need to care about whether this is the most important century out of all of the centuries to come. It doesn't actually matter, the, the past, because that's kind of water under the bridge at this point, at least yeah, for at deciding least, our actions. At so. least for deciding our actions. I think it yeah. can be important for... Trying to figure out what is the generating process. Yeah, and just generally understanding yeah. what's going on in human history yeah. and so on. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, do you want to uh, explain what Carl had to say and uh, how persuasive you found it? Yeah, so I mean, I kind of, again, saw Carl as adding to my list of outside view arguments where, you know, I'd mentioned that we're very early on, and he points out that, like, well, if you've just over time got some point of having early, you know, a lock-in of values or going extinct, well, if you're born at a later stage, then there have been all of those events that are already behind you, and that's kind of reduced your probability of being at a later stage. So that's kind of one line of argument. Second is just going to be vastly more people in the future. A third is being at this Goldilocks time when there are some people with long-termist values, but not, not tons of people, not everyone. And the claim being that in the future, well, I can't remember if he makes this claim, but one could, that in the future, one should expect everyone to have long-termist values. I guess I don't, but it seems like it could well be more people than now. Yeah, I mean, well, there's this argument that I'm like somewhat skeptical of, but has some plausibility that, well, people with zero rate of pure time preference will win out eventually. Um, so if we've got kind of thousands or millions of years of cultural evolution, then those who are most patient will um, accumulate more resources. Acu- ultimately accumulate more resources. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So actually, so maybe my understanding of Carl's objection was, so there's a bunch of different things. So one is he's saying, let's imagine that the model is that in any given century from the beginning, there's like a one in a thousand chance, a one in 10,000 chance of that century, like locking everything in, because that century can affect like all future centuries. 
So let's say there's a chance that, for like one in 10,000 chance, just in the first century, that we go extinct, then that obviously like determines, or that like locks in everyone else because they don't exist. And he's like, well, if you just like carry that forward, then it seems like the distribution of like most important centuries starts mm-hmm. out like very high. And then it, then it goes down pretty quickly because it's just like those future centuries, once you're at the millionth century, there's like a, just a very high chance that it's already been determined by something in the past. Mm-hmm. So, it, and then if we have that kind of prior over which centuries are, are most important, then that gives us like a much higher credence that this century would be way more, uh, is much more likely than like a century, a thousand, a thousand centuries from now or a million centuries from now. Because it's just overwhelmingly likely that if the world had kind of hasn't been locked in or like future hasn't been determined yet, then it will have been by the time we get, we get to them. Okay. Uh, okay. And then we're like, but why would we have this high risk of kind of blocking or why is it that it's like a current generation can, can affect the very long-term future? There's a couple of different reasons. Or like, so one is that I guess now we have like, yeah, weapons that can destroy things. We've got like nuclear war, potentially we'll develop even like more destructive technologies in the future. We've also got the fact that we're getting better, much better at reproducing values over time. So in the past, like, uh, you know, every generation, there's like a whole lot of random variation that is thrown up between, you know, from one to the next as like genes are, are remixed. And basically, if even if one generation has a particular set of views, they can pass that on culturally to like the next generation, but they can't pass it on extremely faithfully because we just see constant like cultural evolution as well as uh, biological evolution. Whereas it seems like we're getting closer to the point where, so I guess like writing helped, for example, to like have views persist over time. And we're getting closer over time to the point where you could have like AI agents that just reproduce themselves exactly every generation to the next or reproduce their values exactly. And this is kind of a a new thing that creates the potential for for lock-in in a way that simply was impossible given the reproductive technology that that we had in the past. And then we've also got another reason to think that it's particularly useful to act earlier because population is rising. And on this model where the future gets very big, population continues to rise. And it seems like your impact at any given point in time might be like one over the number of people who exist at that time. So for example, let's say in the past there was some kind of like bottleneck where there was only 10,000 humans around. It seems like you might have had like much better opportunities to influence the trajectory of civilization at that point as one person than you can now as kind of one person out of 8 billion of them because it's just like your influence is very much watered down on average. There's like all of these reasons to think that over time importance should be expected to go down quite a bit which gives like a prior say of this being the most important century of one in a thousand perhaps. And then when we look around and see, actually it does seem to be really important. We just like actually update to it being like 10% likely or something like that. Okay, great. Yeah, so this is definitely why I kind of, for some of these at least, prefer to characterize these as outside view arguments rather than priors. Okay. But, um, right. So where I get, I get, you know, the idea that like, oh, we've woken up and the population is seven and a half billion, it's not a hundred trillion, that should be an update or something. Similarly, I'm very early on, or somewhat early on, but not super early on or something. That's an update too. And yeah, then quantitatively, in a footnote, I say that these do actually move my credence to, I say somewhere in the like 0.1 to 1% interval. So this Um, is already baked into you. You're like, you've seen all of these things that I've just said, and that's what's brought you up to 0.1 to 1%. That's right, yeah. So there was one thing that you said, which is more like inside view argument, and again, you know, it's not like there's a clean distinction, I think, which is, oh, we're coming up to these technologies where mm. we can get kind of even better lock-in. Yeah. And you were saying, oh, well, it seems like, our, you know, the importance has been increasing over time. And that kind of relates to the other argument I make, which is, I think, overall, actually, if, again, we're defining influentialness as, like, who do you want to pass resources to, I would think I have changed my view a bit on this, but my view still would be that basically at any time of the past... I would rather pass it to now. <laughs> yeah. And if that's the case, then probably I should pass it still further into the future. And so while it is the case that 
we're getting better technology that might give us the power to lock things in over time, which, you know, is a reason. Well, that's a reason why kind of influence is increasing over time. But then insofar as there's an argument like, well, you want to be before any login events, that's a reason for earlier. But we're also getting better knowledge over time, better understanding. And that reason pushes later. And so at that point, well, you could either try and have like a a priori <laughs> argument that's like a battle between those two, or just then look at, well, over time, how have these two factors been playing out? And it seems to me that over time, it's been the case that we would actually want to say, say like influence has been increasing. And so perhaps we should expect it to keep going like that into the future. Like I've always been wanting to pass the sources into the future, yeah. mainly because the knowledge and understanding benefits have been so great. They've outweighed these other things. So just to recap that, you're like, yes, Rob, all the things you said. But on the other hand, there's this other factor which pushes in favor of doing things later, which is that we become wiser over time and therefore more capable of figuring out what actions to take to influence the long term. Yeah. And then if we just like look historically, like which of these things seems to be more important? It seems like in the past, people would have done better to just save the money and then like give it to us today to yeah. try to have an impact than to try to have influence in their own time. And so shouldn't that suggest that maybe the same is true of us today and that we should yeah. like leave money to people in 50, 100 years and then they can decide whether to pass it on to the next generation as well? Yeah. Okay. So I think that's kind of compelling. On the other hand, I guess some people did push back and say, no, actually, I think people in the past should have done uh, direct actions. So, for example, like people during the early stage of the Cold War should have been working on nuclear security and like bioweapon prevention and things like that. I think yeah, you, you were inclined to say that people in the past couldn't have anticipated what things would have been useful. And then other people in the comments section here were saying, ah, no, actually, like some of them did. Yeah, I think there was one thing that I made a mistake about, which is I think I didn't appreciate that concerns about biorisk and AI, I think, were accessible in the relevant sense in like the 50s, I think. If you had, again, it's like, what exactly is the counterfactual you're asking about? But like given a kind of wide, a wide search. But it still would be the case that, well, if on the standard, you know, on the standard views, risks from AI and bio are way larger than risks from nuclear war or from totalitarianism, let's say. And so... If it was like, well, in the 50s, I would have been focused on kind of nuclear security. Yeah. And you also believe, though, that it's, I mean, I think if we go with Toby's numbers, like 100 times more likely that existentialist comes from AI than nuclear war, then it seems like hard to believe you wouldn't, we wouldn't now prefer to like have the money kind of sent in the future. And you might also then over time, you know, perhaps in the 80s, you would have started focusing on nanotech or something, which people now don't think of as a, you know, you might well have also engaged in a number of other activities that now seem wasteful from the perspective of today. So I think I still endorse the view of like pushing resources into the future. The biggest caveat actually I'd have is about like the rise of fascism and Stalinism. Is that the thing to push on? This is like a kind of totally different worldview, which is just like you've got a battle between resort, like <laughs> battle of different ideologies over time. And even though you might not think that uh, a particular ideology Will last forever. Well, if it lasts as long until you get like some eternal lock-in event, then mm. it lasts forever. Yeah. So like maybe a different conversation we can have, but like I kind of think the rise of fascism and Stalinism was a bigger deal in the 20th century than invention of nuclear weapons. Interesting. Okay. Sorry, that's all a, that's a bit of a digression. Uh yeah. So I updated that we would have had more knowledge in the past. And I agree that the best things to do could have been building a long-termism movement and so on. But I'm to be clear, I'm counting Rocket. that as investment activities. Yeah. But it 
it does seem to me the case that it would have still been better to pass the sources into the future. Mm. I'd be happy to have my mind changed on that, though. Okay, so maybe a different angle on a, on a kind of similar concern to the ones that have been raised. I'll just read this quote from Will Keeley in the comment section. The hingiest century of the future must occur before civilization goes extinct. Therefore, one's prior that the current century is the hingiest century of the future must be at least as high as one's credence that civilization will go extinct in the current century. And I think that this is already significantly greater than one in, in 100,000 or something like that. Yeah, what, what do you make of that argument? Is it kind of, does it seem like if you're going to take the prior that you're taking or the video you're taking, that one has to kind of deny just that uh, extinction is, is at all plausible, just because it like, seems so improbable for the century to be so important? Yeah. So, I mean, I will acknowledge that the issue of factoring in extinction with my players, I don't feel super comfortable about. The thing that I've been suggesting as a player, and again, I wish I was more explicit on, is it's kind of two steps. One is a function from size of a population to chance of you being the most influential person. And then secondly... For the purposes of action, what we care about is the world in which we're in a really big universe, if we're successful in our actions to reduce extinction and so on. And if without that second thing, we're just looking at, are you the hingiest person ever? Well, then overwhelmingly likely you're going to be the hingiest person ever in some world in which we go extinct quite soon. But that's not that, those aren't the worlds we're interested in. Mm. So... I've been wanting to just focus on the worlds that are most important from a long-termist perspective, where it really is the case that we're like able to bring about a very long future. And so the person who thinks we're at the hinge of history would have to say that, like, yeah, in the most action-relevant world, if we are successful, we are the most influential person out of, you know, a trillion, 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 or whatever. And so the, that, yes, the fact that we may well be the most influential person in some like small future where we go extinct pretty soon. That's way more likely to be true, but not that interesting. Not so so okay. not what I want to focus on. Yeah. A different line of criticism in the comments, I think led by kind of Greg Lewis, was that, yes, this might all be right, but if it's the case that kind of right now, which I think we're only, there's only a like 0.1 to 1% probability of this being the most important century, we're kind of never going to get above that in the future. It's like we just live in a world where there's going to be really important moments, but because we are so skeptical to start with that we're ever going to live through one, the most confident we're ever going to get is about 1%. Yeah. And so because we don't want people to like always ignore whatever like red flags they see that this is a particularly important time, we should be willing to act on like the, the tentative hypothesis that this is a particularly important time if we see evidence as strong as what we see now, uh, rather than just like always punt it to the future because that like guarantees that people will never act. They'll just yeah. like save a whole bunch of resources and then at some point they will go extinct. Yeah, so I definitely agree that we shouldn't assume that you need to have high credence in this to actually act. Instead, it's just, you know, the action-relevant question is, what's my credence in this? How high do I think it could be yeah. <laughs> in, you know, 20 years' time mm. or 50 years' time? And yeah, so I agree with that, and I think that's important. The thing that he said in the comment that I didn't agree with was that that could justify, even if you're like at 1%, a kind of monomaniacal focus on the present. Seems like you might want more of a mixed strategy. Yeah, and this is how I, in kind of sum from the comments, there definitely gets to a point where you've made the qualitative considerations and now there's just some quantitative argument, <laughs> which yeah. is, okay, well, we get diminishing returns from spending now. There's some chance that well, this is the most confident we're going to get, yeah. <laughs> especially most confident we're going to get given sufficient time away from some important event, but we shouldn't be very confident. Then you need to start 
having some actual quantitative model yeah, in order yeah, right. to be able to say like, well... How much to spend and how much to save. Yeah. yeah. But it seems still quite unlikely to me that we'd want to have like monomaniacal focus now because, well, it's just like, surely it's just, if you think it's like, oh, well, I'm now at this really confident 1% yeah. chance, surely you sure. must think there's like a good chance we'll think that again in 50 years or, you know, 100 years. Yeah. A whole line of argument for delaying uh, your, your impact or like passing resources to the future that we haven't even talked about yet is that you earn the real interest rate. So even if you think it's fairly likely that this is the most important century, if you think that, you know, the next century is going to, going to be like somewhat less important, then you could have 10 times as many resources if you just like put it in the stock market and then took it out. Yeah, uh, that's right. So this is why this notion of influentialness, is, it's only yeah. one part of the consideration yeah. about giving now versus later. We've also got this like trading of resources between time and what's the exchange rate basically, where it's like the longer you leave it, potentially the more resources you have to spend from yeah, having yeah. saved it. And we'll have another episode with Philip Trammell about this where we discuss this in forensic detail for, for many hours. So I can't wait to listen to <laughs> it. Might, might pass on that one. I think it's probably going to come out after this episode. That's kind of a more natural ordering. So. Yeah. Another really interesting comment that I wasn't sure exactly where it was coming from, but it, I thought it raised some really important points was um, Paul Cristiano writing about why he thinks that there's quite a high probability that we'll see a relatively sudden increase in economic growth in the next century. And I guess maybe the, I guess the connection there is that, well, if you're going to have some sudden phase shift in like how quickly things are growing, then that seems like an unusually important time in a common sense way. And it also might make the, the current century hingy as well. Do you want to just uh, yeah. explain that and whether you found it convincing? Okay, great. Yeah, so um, growth now and economic growth is way higher than it was historically. So during the hunter-gatherer era, growth was very low indeed. Then after the Neolithic Revolution, well, actually several thousand years after the invention of agriculture, but around about when the first cities started to form, growth increased quite rapidly, in fact. Hmm. And if you look on a semi-logarithmic graph, or at least of population, because we're in a Malthusian condition at that point, so increased growth turns into greater population. It looks quite clear like it's just a, a change in the gradient of the graph. So we've moved from one rate to another rate. And then that happened again <laughs> in the Industrial Revolution. Again, even just looking at population growth, it changes from what by present-day standards are the very, is a very low rate to a much higher rate. And so world economic product grows now you know, a few percent per year. And then there's various ways you can interpret what's happened there. Uh, so Robin Hansen, has argued that we can see this as a, a series of new growth modes. So there's an exponential prior to the Neolithic period that transitions into a new exponential with a higher growth rate. Paul himself has argued it's better understood as just a hyperbolic growth hmm. over time. So it's not that there's any special modes. It's just that we keep accelerating and accelerating. And the higher the level of growth, the faster the growth rate. Hmm. And Paul in his comment, does not lean on the idea of hyperbolic growth, but he says that even if you think that it's just been a success, you know, two growth shifts, well, we should think it's pretty likely that it'll happen again. And the reason he suggests that is because after a certain amount of, you know, if you look at how long in terms of economic doublings did it take to go from one growth mode to another, well, assuming it was that length of time measured in economic doublings again, well, it would you know, it'd actually be quite likely for it to occur in the next 80 years or 100 years. Hmm. And then the question is, well, why is that very important? Well, if we were to make extremely rapid technological progress, there's just more stuff that can happen during that time. So rather than thinking about chronological time, perhaps we should think about you know, economic time, where you know, far more output will be produced over the coming century than all previous centuries. Another more intuitive way of saying this perhaps is just, well, 
one thing we're just doing over time is drawing from this urn of technologies. Maybe we get one that destroys us all. Maybe we get one that locks things in forever. And that we're just drawing a lot faster <laughs> if we hit another growth mode. And there's a lot to kind of say on this. One is I think the under, like the underlying idea of shifts and growth modes, I think is extremely important and in the wider world, like extremely neglected or like underappreciated. And so the idea that there could be another one like it's only happened twice before is yeah. kind of totally on the table. And, and in addition, it seems like we have specific theories about what those technologies might be that seem pretty plausible. Yeah. Like how could things like speed not, up? Well, it's like we have like AI or yeah, so, some other thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the two most obvious ones would be AI and uh, human genetic engineering. Yeah. yeah. So there's lots to say on this. One is just, well, the move from saying it's like a fast growth mode to hinginess is like quite a big leap itself. Uh, or most influentialness, where if you were at the Neolithic Revolution, it seems like, well, you just wouldn't have had the knowledge or understanding to like have a big influence there from the long-termist perspective. Or it could have been actively bad if you had done. You know, you may have invented a new religion or something. Hmm. The second shift in growth mode to the Industrial Revolution, there it's kind of, I think it's unclear. It's like hard to know what to say. My read would be that, again, people would have like a very poor understanding of what the best thing was to focus on there. And so, you know, at least from, again, from the historical case, it's not like a strong argument for thinking, well, oh, well then this time we will have enough knowledge to ensure that things go well. There's a second consideration, which is that if you're a long-termist and other people aren't, that can be an argument for wanting to be in a period of time with low economic and technological growth or change. Hmm. So here's the model where... If things are changing a lot, then you just can't really make long-term plans very well because you don't know like what these new technologies are going to be and they change the landscape and means that you know things come to naught. Whereas if we're in this kind of stagnant period, then there are some things which have this really long-term payoff and there's some things that have short-term payoff and all the people who discount the future with a pure rate of time preference, they go for all the short-term stuff. But you've got these like really cheap long-term plans for the influence that you can get for the bargain price. Hmm. But in the case where things are changing all the time, perhaps you just don't have access to those long-term plans. Well, it's harder to implement because the world's changing so fast. Or it's harder to implement. So you're worried yeah. about expropriation or legal changes or, yeah. or like war or all these other things. A let's bit say, more. So let's say VHS is versus Betamax is happening and... I'm like, oh, I really want Betamax to, to um, be the standard rather than VHS because it's mm. the better format and you get this lock-in. If there's just rapid technological progress when that happens, well, it just doesn't really matter very much because you've got CDs or DVDs um, like a few years later. Right. If technological progress is really slow and it's like thousands of years of people using the wrong <laughs> movie watch. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. The, it would be yeah, a tragedy, exactly. But perhaps that could happen with other sorts of, you know, if you've got just the sequence of lock-in events, then th those will last for longer in periods of like less rapid technological change. So it's not obvious to me like which direction tech change goes in. Hmm. In terms of creating importance. In uh, terms of influence. Yeah. In yeah. terms of like, when do you as a long-termist yeah. most want your other sources to be? Yeah. And then in general, I think I would love to see more work on this idea of kind of growth modes over time. And there is work that's starting to happen on this where there's a bunch of stuff where one is just what's the data like? that's making us think there are these kind of growth mode changes. Ben Garfinkel's been looking into this. In conclusion, the data is really bad, like basically made up. I can't kind of independently verify that, but it's not very, not very surprising. You're saying kind of the, the historical economic growth rates that Robin Hanson yeah, or so, Paul Christian are using to make this argument is kind of just 
mostly just invented based on like before looking at like how life was at different points in time and then kind of extrapolating, yeah. interpolating between that. Yeah. So there's, yeah, like the move from hunter-gatherer era to farming era seems like, wow, a rapid increase in population growth rates. But we actually just have no idea what the populations were like at the time. At least that's the kind of argument I've heard. We've just got like very poor um, hmm. quality evidence. But it seems like even just getting it right to the right, to, to an order of magnitude might show that there was like an increase in the growth rate. Yeah. The, I mean, there's two... Over, over such... Because we're talking here about like thousands of years in the first period and then like hundreds in the next. And... Yeah. I think I don't have a good sense of just quite how unreliable the data is. Okay. Yeah. One thing that is important is the second question, which is what sort of curve you fit to that. Yeah. Where Paul's view is this is a hyperbolic curve. Yeah. So just whatever the level of growth you're at, where it's a the higher the level, the higher the growth rate. I'm not a big fan of that. One reason is I think when you look at better data, it looks like at any period, it looks more like an exponential. Hmm. And then a second is just that argument would have predicted that we would have had infinite growth by 1960. <laughs> um, Did we? And we had, well, not to my knowledge. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we did. Maybe. And it's just like. Um, now we're in the simulation, I guess. Some, yeah. some corner of the, of the world. Yeah. And so if you want to, you know, and Paul's obviously is aware of that as, a, yeah. as an argument against. Smart dude. Yeah. Um, very smart dude. And just thinks, well, this is just like an unusual period of stagnation. And yeah. in the past, it's not literally following a perfect exponential. There's periods of higher growth and stagnation and so on. Whereas I'm more inclined to see like what happened was we invented this thing, which is like, well, it's not even like an invention. We developed like a culture of innovation and industry. Mm. Yeah. We're getting this huge wave of benefits from that. Yeah. That, as with basically everything, takes the form of an S-curve. And so we're actually kind of like slowing in our technological progress. Mm. Maybe there will be some new big thing. Maybe that's AI. Maybe that's something else. Yeah. But that would be... It's not an exogenous event, but it's not a con- it's not a mere continuation of the existing event. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so um, so in this model, we had kind of the scientific revolution, and then we had just so like once we developed that method of learning things, we just had so much low hanging fruit of like amazing things we could invent and discover. And now we're kind of like running out of things that it's easy for humans to learn, and that's like causing us to just like level off a little bit. Yeah. So I mean, and actually, I mean, I mean, a lot of people have raised this specter. Actually, it was like a lot yeah, of yeah, yeah. Think that this oh yeah, absolutely. Out. I've like so Robert Gordon, Rise and Fall of American Growth, has been quite, Cohen. quite influential on me. And yeah, on the Industrial Revolution, you know, I've been, I've read a number of books now on what are the causes of it. I think something really messy like culture (laughs) is like the most likely answer, at least as for like, why did it occur then? Because here's the thing. Not like the ability to transmit information over time, like writing or like journal systems. I guess maybe you're going to class it as culture. Well, we just had that for quite a long time time period before unless you think of that well not like not cheaply anyway uh sorry i uh, I shouldn't interrupt you yeah i mean look there is an issue there is an issue which is like there's so many possible explanations it's also probably something like oh why did the fire start was it because Mm. of the kindling or was it because of the match or was it the oxygen it's like well it's all of these things yeah so similarly like it's it's easy to explain the industrial revolution we've got 12 (laughs) explanations yeah exactly we've got too many but there is a striking thing which is that we got the scientific revolution, the enlightenment, and the industrial revolution all at about the same time, and they don't seem to be particularly important for each other. Like, the, you know, we were already entered like much more rapid growth before we started relying heavily on steam and coal. Like, yeah. the early inventions were like the Jacquard loom, and it's they're just things that are like, oh, I put this like <laughs> bunch of sticks together in this way, and now yeah. I can yeah. weave ten times faster than I did before. Yeah, so it's like, and now the economy is like 01 percent larger. You know, it was just incredibly low-hanging fruit when it came to innovation. And that's definitely not true now. But yeah, but that does relate to 
you know, Paul's claim with respect to how likely we should think there's a new growth mode, where again, I want to emphasize the main thing is I agree with him that it's significant, but I'm much less inclined to agree with the idea that, well, there's been a certain amount of economic progress and we should measure time in economic time. Because mm. if you think, well, the underlying like trigger for, say, the agricultural revolution was like climatic change, well, that's just got nothing to do with the level of growth in the past. Mm. And then if you think the industrial revolution has got, its timing was dependent on you know culture, institutions, and so on, that's not endogenous in the same way as well. Like the rate of cultural change over time is much slower than not determined by rates of technological change. So. Yeah. Yeah, not, not not so much directly. Yeah, I've got quite a lot to say about this. I was, I was kind of surprised by how skeptical you were that we would see, given that, assuming that we don't have extinction or some massive catastrophe, that, yeah. we, that we, uh, we would see a, a big speed up. I guess, looking back at history, it seems like it can't be the case that through most of history, we've had economic growth anywhere near the level that we've had now. Clearly, yeah, yeah. this is like a, a fast rate. So there was like, like at least one step change. I guess like possibly, yeah, yeah, yeah. possibly multiple ones. And I suppose if we're going to go back further, we could be like, well, <laughs> initially all was void and like rocks. Yeah, and now yeah. then we had life and then we had like eukaryotes and we had plants and yeah, then we got yeah, like animals. Yeah. And then we had like brains. So from another point of view, it's like we see this like technological advancement through evolution that's like increasing. I guess what, what's the measure of the economy here? I suppose it's like the biomass of all the life on earth or something like that. Mm-hmm. But obviously that's very gradual. And then humans like seem to be speeding that up a hell of a lot. Yeah. So I guess my default view would be we'll see an increase in the rate of growth again at some point. I suppose maybe Paul's making a stronger claim that it would happen in the next century. Yeah, I mean... Maybe that's a bit more... He was saying, he said, like, certainly more than 10% in the next century. Yeah. And I would disagree with the certainly, but I would put it at something like 10%. Okay. So, yeah. So maybe it's it's, it's not very much of a disagreement. Well, yeah, especially when it's something where, as with many of these things, the numbers feel quite made up, so... Yeah. um, (laughs) uh, yeah. But it feels so different. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right, well, we'll stick up a link to uh, Robin Hansen's paper on this and maybe a few other articles that we can yeah, see on sure. this question of like whether we should expect growth to speed up or stagnate or yeah. Yeah, slow down. Okay, so we spent a bunch of time like canvassing various objections that you got in, in the comments on, on that post. Where do we stand now? It's like, do you feel like more or less confident about your original conclusions having seen what people had to say about it? And I guess it seems like this is a very pressing question for us to figure out. Like, are you right about this or not? Or was the original post like a good reasoning? Because it's, it's very decision relevant. And so it's like, we need to have some agenda for, for resolving that. I mean, I feel like 80,000 hours, we want to know. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I agree. And I think that the question of whether we should be just trying to act now versus passing resources into the future I guess that's maybe taking that latter idea far more seriously is maybe the most important update I've made over the last year. I think at this point, it needs to start getting quantitative because we all agree that we're at a really unusual time, (laughs) Uh, as in, you know, whatever low prior you want or something, we should update away from that because of the reasons I've said being early on in time, single planets, high economic growth rate, and so on. You know, I express some skepticism that, you know, maybe technological progress is actually being in a period of technological progress is bad if you're a long-termist. But, yeah. you know, when you're starting from such a low prior, if it's like, well, 10% that is good, then yeah, that's, pushes it up. that pushes it up a lot. But then there's a question of, well, how much do you update? And Toby's proposal seemed much too extreme to me because yeah. it makes it, for example, overwhelmingly likely it was in the past. And then secondly, what we care about as our posteriors, the priors, although I think it's kind of good to keep this posterior that doesn't then also update on, say, the boston Yukowski arguments, because that at least gives us a sense of like, well, what's the burden of proof for thinking there's some specific lock-in event coming? 
And there, again, we want to get just a little bit more quantitative on, well, what's the right distribution we should have of diff- over different models for <laughs> this? And when you put that all together, what sort of number do you end up with? And then the second part of it is with respect to, should we actually be sending money into the future or resources into the future versus now? Again, we're just going to want to get a lot more quantitative. (laughs) And Phil is doing this, like, Mm. where, you know, there's a variety of considerations. So one is diminishing marginal returns to money at any time. A second is expectation of how many more long-termists are going to be in the future or not. A third is the what's the rate of return over time. Yeah. Fourth is how much more are we learning and how good or bad are the best opportunities going to be. And so once you put that all together, you get some portfolio where you know it's very likely that you'll be spending some amount every year and saving some amount every year. And then the precise quantities are An empirical question. up for debate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, kind of empirical question. (laughs) And a theoretical one. More empirical empirical than we've been so far. Yeah. Yeah. And then finally, is like, how does that map onto what we're currently doing? Where at the moment, we actually are saving a lot. Mm. (laughs) Almost all of, you know, OpenFill is not even spending what I would expect the return on its assets to be within any individual life, insofar as people donate as they go rather than save money and donate. That's effectively investment. Mm. Lots of direct work is actually. Meta in the same time, so because it's so that accounts as a form of saving because you're uh, getting more people to agree and be willing to do the kind of stuff that you yeah, would do now exactly. in the future. Yeah, so it could also be the end of, be the case that we end up having been doing the right thing <laughs> by accident. By accident. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess like I do sometimes feel that there is a feeling that goes round, especially kind of outside of the very core of EA, and maybe less so now, but over the last couple of years which was among long-termists and people who take AI seriously, it's like, well, there's the short timelines. We should add extra. We should have short timelines for AI. We should put extra weight on short timelines. And so we should just be really going like all out, helpful out on this, all out on this. That is to try to like shift pivotal events that might happen in the next 10 years or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Whereas I think that, I think there should be like a diversity approaches. I think, you know, I think Paul should be doing that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm really glad he is. But for the EA movement as a whole, I think it would be very bad if we like pinned, you know, everything to this mast of short-term AI timelines. Like, because yeah. I think that's probably going to be overwhelmingly unlikely. Yeah, or yeah. like, yeah, well, at least quite unlikely. quite unlikely. Whereas there are actions we could be taking that could have could be ensuring that EA has an impact over long timescales, and in particular, we should potentially be thinking about like centuries worth of impact. Yeah. <laughs> Where if you look at other social movements, like most, I would say, had most of their impact more than essentially after <laughs> the first ideas of progenitors. And that's like a perspective and a form of thinking that I think a lot of people have not been paying much attention to. And so it would mean that at the moment, ensuring that EA is like a product and ideas like just right <laughs> yeah. becomes very, very important. And in general, perhaps much more important than like faster growth kind of right now. Yeah. So I guess 
to give my over- overall view, having read the, the post in the comments. We have one reservation I had about having this conversation is that it seems like we're in very much a state of flux where people's views on this are shifting quite a lot because we're uncovering new, oh, uh, new, yeah. new ideas and new considerations. And it seems like quite possible that you could persuade the people you were talking with that you were right and that uh, they might persuade you that you're kind of oh, that you're, the original blog post was, was misconceived. Yeah. There's the possibility of maybe getting people to, to, to take some of these ideas too seriously when it will turn out that like in a few yeah. months we'll find really strong rebuttals. Yeah. But I guess, yeah, so I, I guess I found the, the responses in the comments relatively persuasive. So I think that the range of saying that probably of this century being like especially important of being like 0.1 to 1% seems too low to me. I, I think okay. that we're going to, I suspect that we'll, we'll end up settling on a prior that is like more generous to the hypothesis that this century is yeah. especially important than what you were using. But I guess, yeah, no, I don't think it can be quite as generous as, as Toby's one. It might be somewhere in between. Yeah. So we'll end up thinking maybe, I don't know, maybe it's more like 10% or something like that. But then I think, well, the proposition that we should be doing like more to influence the long term and to invest in not just having an impact in the short run and passing resources onto future generations, that I think is, is much more plausible because there's like other considerations in its, in its favor above yeah. and beyond just thinking that this century isn't especially important. Like you can give way more resources to, to future centuries yeah. and that we're getting much more informed about how to have an impact. So I suppose it's not, I guess, if people take away, oh, well, I should be thinking more long term about having an impact, then that probably seems, uh, that seems good, even if the reasons are somewhat different. I think, yeah, another way of putting it a little bit is that there's been a lot of thought of, well, short AI timelines is an unusually high impact world, but very long timelines, or in fact, no timeline, if it's just in the sense that there's not like a specific moment when we get AGI. Those are also very high impact worlds because hmm. it means we have tons of time to grow and we can exploit the fact that, you know, we have zero pure rate of time preference where those other people are really hasty. So you just can take long-term plans and effectively trade with people to have more leverage in the future. Yeah. This is a nice preview of the Philip Tremel episode, which we're now definitely going to have to release after this episode. Okay, good. <laughs> this is such a nice preview of, uh, of, of where that conversation goes. So one question I've seen on the forum, and I guess you did an AMA recently, uh, and a question that was a great popular demand among listeners was, what now do you think is kind of the risk of human extinction in the next hundred years? Or I suppose some you know, global catastrophic risk that's very spectacular. Uh, yeah. So this has definitely been the thing by far and away that most people have come up to me and asked me about yeah. after the AMA. No so, one wants to know my probability of extinction well. You <laughs> well, I think it, I think people should yeah, yeah. maybe say more. Pretty, okay, yeah. I seem to remember yours was very high, so uh, Oh, yeah, it used to be. Maybe it's I think it's gone down actually. Okay. Yeah. Mm. If moderate. Well, maybe I'll find out. <laughs> so yeah, so I got asked kind of if the ways in which I've changed my views. One of the things I said was that my credence in existential risk in the 21st century has gone down from 20% to 1%. And a lot of people have come to me and be like, what's going on? Yeah, You're mad, Will. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So yeah, happy to talk about that. I mean, in terms of, you know, why, you know, normally my clients wouldn't jump around in the same way, in such a large way. But this was a move from basically deferring to people, you know, like picking someone in particular, Toby, that I uh, respect extremely highly, learning what his views are and <laughs> believing them. Yeah, so instead, the thought was just, well, I'm going to start writing this book on long-termism. I want to start to uh, get engaged with the fundamentals and understand, yeah, what actually are my views on these topics? And so rather than asking, why did it move from 20% to 1%, the relevant question is just, well, why is it this number rather than any other? And so let's just start with, again, kind of prior setting for like, what should I expect it to be over the next 80 years? And I think that there are a few different lines of reasoning here that all point in basically the same direction of and the 0.1% to 1% interval. One is just, well, if uh, what's been the existential risk over the last century, 
or perhaps more accurately, last 20 years, and then, you know, assume the future will resemble the past. I think, you know, the highest, I wouldn't want to go any higher than 0.1%. So again, you know, Toby uses that figure for existential risk from nuclear war. I guess he also says the same from climate change and environmental depletion, but again, it's the same kind of this, the order of magnitude I'm talking about. On the details, I would actually put it a little bit lower than that, but that's not, you know, that's not that important for now. A second then is just thinking in terms of the rational choice of the main actors. So what's the willingness to pay from the perspective of the United States to reduce a single percentage point of human extinction? Whereby that, that just means the United States has 300 million people. How much do they want to not die? So assume the United States don't care about the future. They don't care about people in other countries at all. Well, it's still like many trillions of dollars. It's a willingness to pay just to reduce one existential point of existential risk. And so you've got to think that something's gone like wildly wrong where people are making such like incredibly irrational decisions. Whereas, oh, Rob just can't wait to respond here. <laughs> it's like you look at the US government, you're like, there's just no way they could mess that up. Well, oh no, but here's the thing. Like, so yeah, so then just following on this is yeah. uh, what's the sort of just risk of death that people just tend to bear? And it's like, you know, maybe 0.1%, 1%, kind of, you know, people drive and so on that yeah. like poses these risks, but not really higher. Like, you know, if I was in a world where existential risk was much higher than that, I would expect to just see technological catastrophes happening, but mm. they almost never do. Like, yeah. So this is a people, slightly different argument. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's again, like, just how does the world, it's somewhat related. Yeah. Sorry. Actually, this is different. It's more like, what's the yeah. trend over time? Okay, yeah, so there's what's total existential risk over time. Then there's, you know, willingness to pay what people in general are willing to bear. And then there's a third thing, which is related to the first two, which is just with respect to developments in new technology, do people tend to be appropriately like risk neutral? Do they tend to be risk averse? Do they tend to be risk seeking? And it seems to me that like actually relative to the rational choice model or how would I expect people's preferences to be? People are risk averse with respect to new technology. Mm. There's very rarely cases where, you know, large numbers of people die because of new technology, for example. Mm. And that, yeah, does apply to like the US government and yeah, so on. That's like, um, I think there are cases. Well, like, you might think it's a little bit random. Sometimes we ban things that we shouldn't. Sometimes we don't ban things that we should. But it's true that sometimes we don't ban things we should, perhaps. But in cases where they kill people, or in cases where it's like a serious, yeah, uh, catastrophic risk, it seems like we're very systematically too cautious well i guess uh, i mean we always come back to nukes but like arguably the u.s should have done more to just like prevent that both themselves and others from ever like scaling up nuclear weapons in a massive way yeah maybe it's like there just aren't that many other technologies that uh, yeah yeah i mean i suppose like the u.s did shut down its biological weapons program more or less because they were, were worried about this yeah. and it was the, the u.s has yeah, kept it but that was yeah. like mostly due to bizarre internal bureaucratic incentives rather than because they thought it was a great idea yeah and i should say yeah i do think that Again, in terms of my estimates for existential risk over the century, I would put like 90% of the risk coming from wartime or something. Because, yes. Precisely because people, like, if you tell me someone's done something, a country's done something incredibly stupid and kind of against their own interests, it's yeah. like, or in some sense of global interest, it's probably happened during a war, war yeah. period. Oh, I have a final, um, a final argument yeah. for player setting, which is then Metaculus is a forecasting uh, platform. And these are non-experts, but they're people who are kind of engaging with it. And they've been asked, what's the chance of a greater than 95% reduction in world population due to a catastrophe by the end of the century? And I think the aggregate, well, where they use the metaculous al algorithm, which is better than any individual forecaster, 
ends up in that ballpark again. It's like 0.5% or something. Okay. Hold it. So you're saying a 1% chance of GCR that kills 95% of people or more. Oh, well, or, no, my was... extinction. It was existential risk. Existential. Oh, I so I actually think, um, I think there's quite a big gap yes, so in the probability I. space between 95% people dying and everyone dying. Massive, actually, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but they're putting 0.5% at... 95 percent yeah, so it's yeah, like yeah. going to be even lower yeah, um, yeah interesting okay so in a sense i think this is crazy because you're just okay so from one point of view you're like oh common sense it's like we're not going to see this like massive change but then from another point of view it just seems massively overconfident to think there's like a 99 percent chance that we'll get through this like what seems like an extremely chaotic era by like historical standards where there are just like so many things that seem like they could happen that they could be really transformative. Like a 99, you're super killing, confident. Okay, killing hold on. everybody. Yeah, so, no, so that's right. So then Seven there's like- Seven and a half billion yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And so, everyone wants to survive. This is yeah. huge. It's both like <laughs> super hard to kill everybody and yeah. there's this huge optimization pressure for this yeah. thing not to happen. So, and like we have many examples in the past of like 50% of people dying in the bubonic plague doesn't even register really from historic, like from a long-term historical perspective, and that's yeah. in a period where we don't have like amazing technology that yeah. allows us to overcome that. So I think one thing I've shifted on over the years is realizing just how hard it is to kill everyone. Yeah. So it's like people talk about climate change, killing everyone. I'm just like, no, that's yeah. not going to happen. It's, it's just so hard to kill like the last one percent because they'll be in like the hard like places that are yeah. fine well, under climate change, even the worst. I think this and, for an asteroid impact as well. Yeah, um, it has to be really quite big. But even, yeah, I mean, like the Chicxulub impact, mammals, like many mammal species still lived. Yeah. And yeah, we have 100 times the biomass of any large animal in like wide variety diversity of areas. We have technology, we can like grow food without sunlight. And then there's also diseases. It's just, it's it's so hard for a disease to spread everywhere all at once and no one have resistance to that. So it's like, it's a lot easier, I think, to have a disaster like a war that kills 95% of people. Yeah. Or it's very devastating. But then like some people through like good luck or yeah, being in, yeah. just being in the right place at the right time, they managed to, to, to survive through it. So really kind of the only, by far the most plausible way I see that you could kill everyone is that you create a new agent that is seeking out to kill everyone and like foil okay. their plans to survive. So it kind of probably has to be AI or something like that okay. in, in my mind. Yeah, I guess now we perhaps I just have quite different views on AI at this point. So where I, like, I think there's yeah. definitely more than a 1% chance that we could create an AI that's misaligned enough to either kill all humans or kind of take us out of the decision loop in a way that we that we don't like. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like supposing you put aside AI. Okay. So then how... I agree with you. Okay. Well, then I'm like, I, your view seems very plausible. Okay, cool. I think I also would have put um, the risk from AI. Well, I mean, I guess insofar as I was deferring to Toby, I can say what his, <laughs> his, his, his book, which again, the majority of credence is from AI, but still mm-hmm. significant credence on biodisc and so on. Okay, interesting. Um, yeah, I guess, I mean, maybe, I suppose if, if, if experts in that area thought that it was much more likely, then I would kind of defer to them. But I guess we haven't seen examples yet yeah, of diseases that were able to penetrate globally or like everywhere that well. Especially, I mean, we have bunkers where people will like, wall themselves off and we have like ships where they might not get to and you know yeah in the, mean, in the antarctic and so on well i mean just, there's a really big question which i feel very unsure on is um supposing that something kills 99 percent of people yeah will we recover, will we recover? where well, i see well, no reason for thinking no and yeah. some positive reasons for thinking yes yeah but even but, if we don't recover there's a good chance we'll still be around in 100 years that's like still the first generation potentially yeah so there's also a question of when you say existential risk oh, in okay, yeah. 80 years what does that mean exactly yeah Interesting. I suppose, yeah, how confident, I suppose in the past, I feel a bit bad because on the show we've suggested that just a standard nuclear exchange between the US and USSR might well cause human extinction. Whereas I actually think that that's very unlikely. Yeah. So I mean, nuclear winter, I would say is even given like an all out exchange, 
I think full nuclear winter is less likely than mm. not to happen. But it's well, like not, not to happen at all. I mean, surely you get some yeah. change in temperature. You'll get some change, but nuclear winter is normally like five degree I see. or greater kind of change. Yeah. But then secondly, I mean, there are many, like, yeah, many people who have studied this who say, or like, I haven't found a single expert who's said, yes, this will kill everybody. Many people have said it will not. And Carl yeah. Sa- and often, point, often reacting to Carl Sagan, who would say that it would. There's and that was one 30 years ago, so it's like very different information that they had then. Yeah. I suppose um, Carl Sagan was also an activist on this point, so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing, then, I guess one thing is just like the people in New Zealand, they're going to survive. It seems like there's very strong indications that people in New Zealand would just continue fishing. You know, yeah, I mean, bad. if you're in a coastal area in the southern hemisphere, temperatures drop by like one or two degrees yeah. um, at most. So it's not like that weird. It's like that's pre-industrial kind of level. It's just, yeah, it's not that big an event. And so it's really hard to see like how that ends up killing absolutely everybody. Well, I suppose actually, well... I guess, given that, the way that it would happen is that we're totally wrong about our atmospheric models somehow, that we've misunderstood. How yeah, yeah, yeah. That has to be like, yeah, some some X factor. Yeah, I would like to do a full episode on this sometime, perhaps with someone who's like really informed on the nuclear winter stuff. Oh, yeah. It seems important. Be, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. And we should I also think actually do still a, work happening there open is. Phil on this. So, um, oh, at Open Phil. Okay. Yeah, it seems like we should also do an episode on this question of uh, would people would we recover if ninety nine percent of people died? Oh yeah, um, yeah. I would love for someone to really spend you know a PhD on that. Uh, yeah, I don't know whether that's happened. Yeah, me too. I mean, because there's interesting. Like one argument I've heard is just well, the disease burden that we carry around is way higher. So HIV, for example, is just mm. you know it's an unprecedented sort of disease. Certainly one that like did not exist in the relevantly equivalent kind of hunter gatherer era. Yeah, or like agrarian era. And perhaps that, you know, I don't know, at least that's something that's like a little bit different. That I mean, one thing is if the, population goes down and population density goes down, that greatly reduces disease transmission and yeah, would like actually yeah, reduce, yeah. although I suppose like in as much as tons of people already harbor lots of different diseases and that maybe now they can't treat because they don't have the antibiotic factories or something like that. So maybe yeah, that's, that's, yeah. That's anyway, there's probably a lot of considerations yeah. here that someone needs to map out. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So then it's the case that. Sounds like AI might be there. AI. Yeah. Sounds like main thing. Yeah, I think in general, when I was moving to, you know, when I had this thought of like, okay, well, I want to get to grips with the kind of base arguments and views here. I did have the thought of like, okay, well, I'm going to write this book. So where are all these reports <laughs> that are giving estimates for existential risk and essentially from various causes? Yeah. Got some comments um, on blogs you could read well. Yeah. And that's <laughs> like, I actually think that's kind of shocking. Like, yeah. especially given, you know, just think about yeah. the allocation of these resources, like the number of people that are going into direct work here versus people who are like, kind of making yeah. the case. Well, um, I mean, so there is super intelligence. There's like this new book from Stuart Russell. But there's but a bunch of is, serious books, I guess, about AI. And Well, no, I think in the case of AI, so Stuart Russell, I really respect. The book Human Compatible, I was disappointed in not, it's just trying to do something that's different than I was hoping it was to do. It's another right. popular book, at least with respect to the key argument. Okay. And then super intelligence, of course, not. It's like a thorough book. Hmm. But, you know, it spends four pages on deep learning right. it was kind of, unfortunately like it was kind of made obsolete i think I like the year that was published because it was published exactly at the point of the, the uh, boom in deep learning i see so you're saying and it didn't so, focus on that because at the time we didn't realize that that was about to take off as a great yeah, method of yeah, basically exactly. doing ai yeah yeah i see and, so I think, and maybe yeah. just many of its arguments don't apply very well to this new paradigm exactly yeah that's like how it naturally seems to me and then perhaps that's wrong perhaps people mm. are like no <laughs> actually it applies really well and like yeah this can be responded to, but I feel like that case needs to be made. Yeah, so we already have an interview with Ben Garfinkel where he uh, lays out his skepticism, but maybe you could like present your own version of that in a, in a couple of minutes. Yeah, so I think there's just a n- whole number of ways in which 
when we kind of take the same arguments and look at current progress, deep learning, I feel like it doesn't fit that well. So in the classic kind of boss them paradigm, you've got some super powerful agent and then you give it this command and it takes the command really literally and goes out and that's, and that's doom. Mm. Whereas case of like creating a smart ML system, you start off with some reward function and it's starting off with a dumb agent and then mm. you're making that like progressively smarter over time. Mm. So it's more like, as just as an analogy, you've got like a child and then you yeah. can like slowly like see how it's performing and you get to like monitor it and see how it's... Cross the river by feeling the stones. Yeah, exactly. And you can turn it off like when you... It's like, oh, it's not doing the thing we want. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll kind of start again. Similarly, the idea that it can't understand this natural... Like it takes the natural language command very literally. Well, that's like, again, like I feel doesn't map on to very, very well to current deep learning where it's like, Yes, we can't specify perhaps exactly what we want in this kind of precise way, but ML's actually been quite good at like picking up fuzzy concepts like mm. what is a cat or not. And it's not perfect. Sometimes yeah. it says an avocado is a Humans cat. Humans aren't either though. So maybe um, it's just like it's going to have a perfect, similar ability yeah. to interpret to what yeah, humans can. Yeah, exactly. And it would be a very weird world if you've got to AGI but can't, haven't solved the like problem of adversarial examples, I think. So I suppose yeah. it sounds like you're, you're very sympathetic to, say, the work that Paul Cristiano and OpenAI are doing, but you actually expect them to succeed. And you're yeah, like, but, yep, they're going to fix these engineering issues, and that's great. Yeah, and but so do most people at OpenAI, as I, I understand it, actually. They're like very, they think this is just a solvable yeah. engineering challenge. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And yeah, this is actually one of the things that's happened as well with respect to the kind of state of the arguments is that I don't know about most, but like certainly very many people who are working on AI safety now do so for reasons that are quite different from the Bosch, the Mukowski arguments. So Paul has published on this. Instead, he doesn't think Doom looks like sudden explosion in a single AI system and takes over. Instead, he thinks it's this gradual, gradually just AIs get more and more and more power. And that's just like, they're just somewhat misaligned with human interests. And so in the end, you kind of get what you can measure. And so on his Doom scenario, this is just kind of continuous with the problem of like capitalism. Yeah, And that's like... I kind of agree. Like yeah. there's this general AI, like what we could call a generalized alignment problem, which yeah. is just... It's like society as a whole is just <laughs> acting in the interest of its participants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then... And this is just a more extreme version of that. Maybe yeah. not even more extreme. Yeah. yeah, perhaps. Yeah, exactly. It's like unclear, especially given that we've gotten better at measuring stuff over yeah. time and optimizing towards targets. And that's been great, in fact. Yeah. But yeah, so, like, so Paul has like a different take and he's written up a bit, it's like a couple of blog posts. But again, if you're kind of coming in from... And perhaps that's, you know, perhaps they're great arguments. Perhaps that's a good reason for Paul to update. But it's again, like, if the claim is, you know, what is a big claim, I think everyone would agree that, like, this is an existential risk. I think we want, like, more than, you know, a couple of blog posts from a single person. Mm -hmm. And similarly, Miri as well are now worried about the problem of inner optimizers, Mm -hmm. the problem that even if you set a reward function, what you get doesn't optimize, doesn't kind of contain the reward function. It's optimizing for its own set of goals. In the same way as like evolution has optimized you, but it's not like you're consciously going around trying to maximize the number of kids you have. But again, that's like quite a different take on the problem. And so firstly, it feels kind of strange that there's been this shift in arguments. But then secondly, certainly the case that like, well, if it's the case that people don't really generally believe the boss of them arguments, I think it's split. I have no, no conception of how common adherence to different arguments are. But certainly many of the most prominent people no longer are like pushing the Boston arguments. Well, then it's like, well, why should I be having these big, <laughs> why should I have these like... big updates on the basis of something that's for which a public case, like in-depth case kind of hasn't been made? 
mean, I suppose you could you could just think that you're in a position to understand those arguments and evaluate them, but it's, that's probably a little bit too overconfident given how hard it is to think about these things. I mean, but then insofar as I have had kind of access yeah. to the <laughs> to the arguments, the, the inner workings and the arguments, yeah, I've been like way less Un- underwhelmed. Yeah, I've been, yeah, um, yeah, I guess. I'm yeah. Not. Because it sounds like there's a bit of, you feel a little bit jaded after. So we got like all of these arguments about this thing and now they've all gone, but now we have these new arguments for the same conclusion that are completely unrelated. I yeah, guess. and they're not completely unrelated. Yeah. But yeah, there's something like... I was going to push back on that. Yeah. I say it's just like when you have something that's as transformative as like machine intelligence, yeah. it seems like there might be lots of different ways that people could imagine that it could change the world. And like some of those ways will be right and some will be wrong. But it's like, it's not surprising that people are like looking at this thing that mm. seems like just intuitively, like it could be a very big deal. And like eventually yeah. we figure out like how it's going to be important. But the base rate of existential risk is yeah. just very low. So, I mean, I agree A is a huge, you know, on normal use of the term, like huge deal. And it could be a huge deal in lots of ways. But then there's at least, there was one specific argument that I was placing a lot of weight on. If that argument fails, then... Then we need a new case, a new need, properly need, laid out yeah, case exactly, for how yeah. it's going to do so at least, Otherwise, it's like, well, even for like really big, like, you know, maybe it's as important as electricity. That was huge. <laughs> or as important as steel. Yeah. That was so important. <laughs> yeah. But like, but steel, steel isn't, isn't an existential risk. forever. Yeah. What do you think of the odds that, so we, we don't all die, but there's something goes wrong somehow with the application of AI or some other technology that causes us to lose the value because we've like, we make some big philosophical mistake or some, some big mistake in implementation. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, like, I think we're almost certainly not going to do the best thing. Yeah. (laughs) You know, the vast majority of my expectation about of the future is that relative to the best possible future we do something close to zero. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's because I think the best possible future is probably some very narrow target. Yeah. Like, I think I still think it's future will be good, but just like... Not the best. In the same way as like actually today, you know, we've got $250 trillion of wealth. Think how, if we were really trying to make the world good and like everyone was agreed just with that wealth we have, mm. you know, how much better could the world be? What, I don't yeah. know. Tens of times, hundreds of times, probably yeah. more. In the future, I think it'll get more extreme. But then... Will it be the case that like AI is that particular vector? I guess like, yeah, somewhat plausible. Like, I don't know. Yeah. But it doesn't but, like, stand out. Like It doesn't stand out. Like else. if people were saying, well, it's going to be as big as like the battle between fascism and liberalism or something. Yeah. I'm kind of like on board with that. But that's not, again, people wouldn't naturally say that's like existential risk in the same. With uh, the same probability. The same, yeah. Yeah. yeah in the same way. Okay, so bottom line is that AI stands out a bit less for you now as a particularly pivotal technology. Uh, yeah, where, yeah, still still seems very important. <laughs> uh, but there's less, yeah, much less convinced by this one particular argument that would really make it stand out for them everything. So what other technologies or other considerations or trends kind of then stand out as potentially more important in, in, in shaping the future? Yeah, well, even if you think AI is probably going to be a set of narrow AI systems rather than AGI. Mm. And even if you think the alignment or control problem is probably going to be solved in some form, the argument for new growth mode as a resulting from AI is, you know, my general attitude is, well, all of the stuff's hard, we're probably wrong, et cetera. But it's like pretty good (laughs) Um, uh, with those caveats on board. And then when you look at the history of, well, what are the worst catastrophes ever? They fall into three main camps, pandemics, war, and totalitarianism. Also, totalitarianism has, or, or well, autocracy has been the default mode for yeah. almost everyone in history, and I get quite worried about that. So yeah. even if you don't, 
So you don't think the AI is going to take over? Well, it still could be some individual. Yeah. And if it is a new growth mode, I do think that very significantly increases the chance of lock-in technology. Yeah, I am um, on board with that. We're going to have more, I think, about totalitarianism. Okay, to the fit. Yeah. yeah, I'm not really sure why we haven't discussed this more. Uh, I think AI in, has displaced it. Yeah, Because okay. we've been like, well, this is going to happen sooner and we'll preempt potential okay. like, political problems. Yeah, um, but you know, even if you just think... The argument I would often hear is like, well, a totalitarian government will never last forever. It doesn't need yeah, to last yeah. forever. It just needs to last till whenever oh. there's a lock-in period. Like, well, also, I think it can last forever uh, or can last a very long time. Yeah. Well, it just needs to last long enough to get to the point where you have like self-replicating, like some technologies that can lock it in place. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly that's my point, thought. Yeah. And so then when you've got that, so AI is one path. But yeah, genetic engineering, like mm. we could already do this. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we could clone humans if we wanted. So let's, let's say AGI is like impossible. I think you can get lock-in from cloning. So the three ways, three things that determine your personality and values, genetics, environment, and randomness. Well, genetics, I can guarantee to be the same via cloning. Environment, well, I just give like, you know, intense model education as different forms. Randomness, well, I just have a thousand of clones. Yeah. So if there was a dictator, they could have, you know, successors to them, the most loyal of the thousands of their cloned children. That could persist certainly for much longer time periods. Obviously, ending aging as well could allow the time periods to be much longer. Yeah. At the risk of interrupting your list here, it's like, so this is kind of the argument that I was making earlier about how we're getting better at like replicating values and copying ourselves. And I, I, I talked about the mach- machine case, but also, yeah, we've got just like with humans, we're doing this as well. Or, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. But, so, this, um, so this like seems to increase the likelihood <laughs> that maybe this century is particularly pivotal, uh, Will. It, well, it does increase the likelihood. Okay. <laughs> to 0.1%. Okay, sorry. All right. No. Well, I said the outside view arguments yeah. move me to 0.1 to 1%. Okay. Cool. Um, All right. Sorry, carry on. I'm not sure how much the inside view arguments yeah. bump, bump me up. Well, okay, sorry. And a, and a different mechanism. It's still to less than 10%. Okay, yeah. And a different mechanism setting aside cloning is we're very close to being able to select for particular personality characteristics for the next generation. Yeah. And... If you just have, say, the government mandate that we have to select for people who have particularly like pliable like personalities or like uh, you know, anti-rebellious or like yeah, very yeah, conformist, yeah. then it seems like if you had like a full generational shift where we got like say one or two standard deviations in conformity, then we might just like never have enough people who are interested in like overthrowing the system perpetually, basically. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't heard that particular argument. I also think we've been doing this already over time. Like, yeah, domesticating ourselves. Is yeah, the argument. Um, yeah, we've been killing violent people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not, not me. No, yeah. <laughs> not we, not well, them. We, yeah, yeah, them, people in the past. Yeah, so, yeah, okay. So, but you're asking kind of what does this mean? Well, yeah, two things. One is insofar as I'm like less convinced by the inside view arguments I've heard. It results in a kind of flatter distribution of concerns, I guess. So AI is there, but yeah, genetic engineering, especially when I see totalitarianism as the kind of the vector then I'm also just much more inclined to look at like what things were really bad in the past. So what could happen again? So I'm very concerned by war, where just the track record over time, just most or like a large proportion of history, we've been at a war between great powers. We have lived through 70 years of peace between great powers, or no hot war at least. And that's like quite unusual historically. But it's not super unusual. If you look at just the graph of like yeah. the rate of death from war, there is it's no up. trend. Like, <laughs> we've had this period of 70 years. Maybe that's a new, you know, maybe we're in a new mode where war is much less likely, but mm. you cannot infer that at all from yeah. the data over time. Rather than it just being like, it's very noisy because it's driven by small, very large events. And in particular, some of the particular explanations you give for 
why there hasn't been a war for the last 70 years are very contingent because one could be, well, luck. We didn't just happen to not go to war between US and USSR. Or the second, just because the US is too powerful. It's just been a hegemon. So there's no incentive because everyone would lose if they went to war with the US. Yeah, That I expect to change yes. um, <laughs> over the coming century. And that really worries me for two reasons. One is insofar as I have this general view that just actually the world is like, people are really safety conscious, quite like timid with respect to new technology and so on. Mm. That gets much less, way less robust if it's a war situation. When I've tried to imagine, you know, one of the things I've found frustrating with the AI literature is that these stories of AI takeover are just like kind of silly. It's like, oh, well, we give it paper clips. And everyone's like, oh, no, but that's just a fable. That's not what I really mean. And I'm like, well, tell me what you really mean. But when I try and imagine like the strongest case where AI does take over, it's like, okay, there's this, you know, war between the US and China. And, you know, we have the capacity to have AGI, but we've like regulated and so on that we don't often use it, but China's losing. And so it's like, okay, I'm just going to give control of the uh, my army, <laughs> which is themselves automated to yeah. like the AI, because otherwise I'm totally going to lose. Mm. Like that's the kind of best case story I could tell. It was, I thought it was- Worst most case. Con- yeah, oh, worst, yeah, most worst likely. Case. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or a story I could tell. It's like, okay, at least I'm starting to make, this is starting to not feel like yeah. a silly fable. I mean, yeah. just to defend the AI people, I mean, I think like the idea of like integrating AI with the military and having that go badly has definitely been on the table as something that people discuss. So maybe they haven't mapped it out very well, but. Yeah, again, I'm not wanting to claim that the arguments are bad. It's I'm claiming that the they published haven't. arguments are bad. They haven't been rigorously put. <laughs> and yeah, yeah sure. and like, why is that? Why is it the case that all the arguments are like this, <laughs> telling me these fables or telling me like. It's a lot of work, Will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, How many well, ideas do you have that you don't write up? Yeah, but no, it's, a, no, it's, not, it's not that nobody's done it. In but yeah, case. just yeah. relative to the amount of expenditure that we're now putting into this area. Yeah. I mean, back, look, I had no objection to this back in 2014. When it's like Boston and yeah. Gersky and like a dozen people, yeah, of we, course. We don't need a 10 of like, 10 people to decide whether five people should yeah, think about this. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas now it's like, you know, I've just come from the speaking tour on college campuses. The idea of AI risk is like quite normal now. Yeah. It's crazy that this is the case. Yeah. Crazy the amount of change that's happened. Yeah. My parents but, used to think that I was a bit nuts. Now they're like totally on board. Wow. That's yeah. in, okay. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, well, I don't think that's unusual. It's just yeah. like, I mean, well, I'm talking about back in 2012. They were like, yeah, it's pretty weird. Yeah. But now it's just very, main, very yeah. mainstream. Yeah. But I think that poses like higher bar for how much effort we should put into yeah. making the case. Yeah. Okay, so the question was what things... So yeah, look at the history. Um, war, I'm particularly concerned about that. Also, if you're asking me about like really bad scenarios for the future, yeah. so not just hmm. neutral, like yeah. extinction or something, but actively bad, yeah. again, definitely comes from war scenarios. Yeah. Then I also just have more concern about just growth of ideology over time. Yeah, so, in the wrong direction. Um, yeah, just there are some... You know, some fundamentalist religious groups that just have more kids have solved yeah. the like lock-in of values better over time. And this perhaps doesn't, you know, there's no new growth mode or anything, but that just slowly takes over. And then again, with better lock-in technology, that lasts for a long time. Yeah, I'm generally, I guess one of the themes is like worry about lock-in of a particular moral view that one would find in the world today <laughs> yeah. rather than catastrophe, which is... Again, there's just not like a historical track record. Well, that's one way that it could happen very 
quietly in a way that's not evidently a disaster. It's just that like you have some like dominant ideology. I guess it could yeah. be like BEA or like our, our views could just yeah, be like, yeah, terribly yeah. wrong and yeah, they yeah. become very mainstream and yeah, popular also, and persist for a long time. And but they're just like really off base. Yeah, I mean, it could have also happened already. Like yeah. maybe it's <laughs> maybe, maybe Western liberalism is a travesty, and yeah, yeah we believe yeah. it because it's um, conducive to economic growth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and in fact, I kind of see that as the default future. Is just um, well, we get philosophy wrong in some respect, and that means that things are way worse than they could have been. Yeah, there's just so yeah, a book that I'd encourage people to read is Forages, Farmers, and Fossil Fuels by Ian Morris, Mm. who points out, and I'm just going to have to defer to him on this empirical claim being the case that hunter gatherers, almost all hunter gatherer societies, had the same social order which was very egalitarian, small tribes or small kind of bands of people, quite permissive to sexual relations, with respect to sexual relations, very high rates of violence. Then we move to the agricultural era, and basically every society has the same social order, extremely hierarchical, you know, whether emperor or even god king, very impermissive attitudes to sex, considerably less violent, but still violent by today. Mm-hmm. And now we're in this post <laughs> for the new society, and That's suddenly we're moving... a new set of moral views. Yeah, this yeah. new set, and it's like... Wait a minute. Quite, yeah, quite what Is culture just an economic superstructure? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there is a counter-argument to that, which is when you look into the future, which is if things do go very quickly, then cultural selection and evolution is rather slow. So perhaps then it's just, well, perhaps say again, there's just super growth modes change and that just takes us to technological maturity. Well, then it's no longer a matter of cultural evolution. It's just the kind of roll of the dice of who, who gets that power. Yeah, so I guess in as much as we're concerned about over centuries, it seems like climate change might be more important. That if we like really trash the planet so that its carrying capacity goes down a lot over two hundred or three hundred years, yeah, then maybe that could actually have a bigger impact than what it seems like. If you think that things are going to change dramatically in the next century anyway, yeah. Also, it might just prolong the period of the time of petals. Mm, um, yeah. So if you think the time of petals is a thing, and yeah, maybe climate change is just again it's worse, and it actually you know we're already kind of stagnating, and it slows down growth even more. Yeah. I don't know. It's plausible that could like last centuries, even longer, before we then get to some faster growth mode. If if there is one kind that of helps to offset it. Yeah, and then that means like centuries more time living with nuclear weapons and biological weapons and so on. Oh, and probably like people being more shitty with one another because like there's not a lot of economic growth to go around. Yeah, absolutely, and a greater time period for cultural evolution to select for mm. those views that are. Most promote fertility. Fertility, yeah. yeah. So um, the Quiverful is yeah. a religious group in the US that is fundamentalist Christian and promotes just having max, as many kids as possible. Wow. So, for it's example, a, a evocative name. Yeah. And um, the standard population projections are that the rate of atheism is going to go down over the coming century because atheists aren't having kids. So. Uh, is that even considering conversion or deconversion? Yeah. I mean, that was my understanding. Don't. Yeah. I'm not an expert. To sure, yeah. It's not considering heritability of religiosity i think yeah but anyway that's you know all obviously these things are also sufficiently non-robust that but um it's an interesting thing that yeah so so culture could evolve in all kinds of different directions and this is one evident way is that it's going to evolve in the direction of whatever ideologies are correlated with people reproducing yeah and so the thing that's like stark and kind of worrying about this is that you might think that the aim as a long-termist is just to avoid any lock-in events. Yeah. So you want to avoid AI lock-in and avoid extinction. Avoid totalitarianism. And then we'll, then yeah. we'll avoid totalitarianism and then we'll be okay because we'll figure that out. But maybe that's just another form of lock-in where you just get this period of cultural evolution over time. And, oh, interesting. But I mean, it's not lock-in, but another way of having a preordained outcome, I see. Um, which is those views that are most... Which I guess is not based on rational reflection. Or exactly, yeah, reflection. yeah. It's exactly. based on evolutionary dynamics, yeah. biologically, yeah. 
fascinating. Okay, so that has been a lot of different considerations that we've thrown out that I guess hopefully we'll have to deal with over the next hundred episodes of the 80,000 podcast, okay, I guess. Yeah. There's too much here for us to really deal with. Yeah. yeah. Setting aside all those different kind of problem areas that I guess look more important in as much as you think the current time is not so remarkable and AI doesn't stand out so, so, so strongly. Yeah. Although on that, I do want to say those are two different kind of arguments. So okay. one is just if you think AI doesn't stand out so strongly, it's natural that you've got a broader range of concern. Yeah. With respect to the argument that like, oh, maybe we're not the key time Sometimes people want to say, oh, therefore we should do some broader things. Mm, improve governance. Improve governance. Yeah. I don't really see why that follows. The thing that follows, I yeah. think, is, oh, we should be trying to save for the, yeah. the really influential time. And then potentially in future spend that on governance improvement. Potentially, at the, at yeah. The op- at the opportune moment. Exactly, yeah. But if yeah. it was the case that, oh, this is great broad existential risk reduction. Well, that makes this a special time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, interesting. Although I suppose you might think that there's a reason to do that sooner because I guess you benefit every year from improvements in governance from the past or it has some kind of exponential rate of improvement. Yeah, or if you just think that, you know, maybe no century is particularly special, you just get like a little bit of Mm. influence over the future every time Uh, and you want to just be chipping away at that. Yeah, interesting. So there's only so much you can do each century and you just have to like put in the the hours to do that. And like you just have to do that every time. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. it doesn't sound super plausible to me, but... Well, I think... I find it more plausible than the idea that just like everything gets decided hmm. at yeah. one moment, basically. Okay. Well, you, you temporarily forward my attempt to move on here. I'm but yeah. sorry. <laughs> so setting aside all those new problem areas, I guess it should also potentially change quite a bit how we try to shake the effective altruism community. And I suppose yeah. it reduces the sense of urgency that you have to grow really quickly and I suppose gives you like a longer term perspective on like how can we make this yeah. thing flourish over a century or a millennia or something like that. Yeah. And I think... I think that's right. And definitely when I'm thinking about EA movement strategy and what it should be aiming to be and, you know, advising, say, CAA on that matter. Yeah, the things that I really think are just, we should be treating this. And this is, you know, a shift from before. It's like not like a startup where you've got yeah. some kind of growth metric yeah. and then going as fast as you can, which makes sense if you're in competition with other things that mm. where it's like, do you get there a few months earlier? Depends on whether you win. Yeah. But instead it's like, we are creating this product or culture that could be very influential for like a very long time period. Mm. Where the other thing to say is that if you look through history at like what things have had influence over, you know, supposing we are trying to have influence in 100 years time or 200 years time, that's very hard to do in general. Mm. But here's something you can do, which is create a set of ideas that propagate over time. That has a good track record of Mm. having long run influence. So yeah, what are some of the things it means? So one is just getting the kind of culture and the ideas just exactly right. Where, yeah, perhaps the idea, because, you know, EA has is kind of a natural kind, but it comes along with all sorts of connotations and commitments and so on. And so when we're thinking about what sort of things are, is it committed to, we should be judging that in part by the question of, well, how is that going to help it grow over the kind of long term? So, you know, one thing I care about a lot is being friendly to other value systems, especially very influential value systems, rather than being kind of combative towards them. Because if we're imagining a world where it's like, oh, well, now yay is this really big thing. Um, you don't want to be in this like fist fight all the time. Yeah, I don't want to be the, to be this big battle between like, yeah. I don't know, environmentalism and EA yeah. or, or other views, especially when it's like, it could go either way. It's like yeah. elements of environmentalism, which are like extremely in line with, you know, what a typical EA would think. And then maybe there's other elements that are like less similar. So which do you choose to emphasize? Mm-hmm. Similarly, like, I mean, I wrote this on the AMA with climate change, where what does the EA think about climate change or something? There's lots of things you could say on that. For some reason, it's been the case that people are like, oh, well, it's not as important as AI. It's like, well, it's just <laughs> it's kind of it's it's an like, odd framing. Yeah, odd framing rather than like, 
yes, you've had this amazing insight that future generations matter. We are taking these actions that are impacting negatively on future generations. This is something that could make the long-run future worse for like a whole bunch of different ways. Yeah. Is it the most, like very most important thing on the margin to be funding? Well, it's like... For one extra person at the beginning of their career? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah. well, yeah, it's like such a strange thing. Yeah, Given that we're so much more on board way, with a lot of the exactly, that's like almost anyone else. Yeah, exactly. And such that like, yeah, if someone tells me like, hey, I'm going to go and work on climate change, that's like amazing. Yeah. Especially there's loads of areas you can like have really significant contributions. Yeah. And just when it comes to individuals, the marginal analysis is way less applicable, I think. I guess, I mean, you also don't want EA to become synonymous in people's minds with like super parochial issues to do with 2019 or Oh, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, like, exactly. So this is like, so the whole list of like, how do we relate to climate change is just like so context specific about like exactly what is money being spent on now and what is really neglected. Yeah, and as much exactly. people think, oh, they're the people who are like kind of lukewarm on climate change. That's like not the fundamental issue at yeah. all. It's like, yeah. that could can be complete. That would have been different 30 years ago and it could yeah, well be yeah. different in 30 years time. Yeah. And that's a good point that I think this favors cause diversity in EA too, where when we're thinking about longer timeframes, it's much more likely that EA will want to shift quite significantly. And, you know, at one extreme, imagine if EA was like the AI thing. And it's like, well, it's very like unlikely to shift. And then, you know, I think if you were to design an EA community that was optimal from the perspective of cause diversity, it would look quite different than it does now. <laughs> but we've like already got some amount of cause diversity that sure has some amount of path dependence. But there's like an additional benefit of that that might be not so obvious, which is like greater ability to kind of morph into, you know, focusing on the best things in the future. And similarly, this like culture of like culture, which I think is very good of like questioning if we're focusing on the right things. Then yeah, also just caring a lot about other EAX risks. And, you know, I've done at least a bit of reading on, you know, previous social movements and things and why they fell apart. One thing that's just fascinating is how much infighting there always is yeah. and how EA at the moment is like remarkable in how little there was. Yeah. yeah. The, the little there is. I mean, there was yeah. more before and now we've, but even when it felt like there was a lot before. I love EA. Even the ones who are wrong about everything. <laughs> yeah. It's so much fun to hang out with. So. <laughs> nice. um, well, I wonder, it's an interesting, no, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, I mean, if you look at like political movements, it's so fractious. It's like, yeah. I mean, um, I mean, at the extreme, they're all killing one another, but at least like they kind of hate one another. Oh, that, yeah. That's like the that's the median case. But even if you look yeah. at yeah, like so, you know, Neil like, Bauman came from the climate change movement before, and there was big fights between like people who are more extreme, more extreme, and less. Extraordinary. I guess yeah, like the equivalent for us is like someone's kind of a bit snippy in a in a comment on Facebook. <laughs> oh, like, oh like, yes, it's like yeah, that's exactly. no good. <laughs> so being able to preserve that is extremely important. I think. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. maybe it's worth dwelling for a second on why is this? I think one thing is. I suppose, yeah, this kind of founding population of EA is, in general, quite calm people, are like very reflective, like not not, yeah. not very impulsive. And we I think have, that's good because it like leads to less conflict. Yeah, I think we have a strong cultural norm of, if I'm like, oh, I really think this, you treat it as some, like one perspective. And yeah. that's very unusual, I think. Yeah, also then a culture of, yeah, this culture of like openness and intellectual curiosity also means that people don't want to like really stake their you know, stake their claim on some particular idea. Yeah. Are we also just nicer somehow? Is there some filter that's causing people to just be like more congenial, like in other ways? So actually one thing is like, in some ways we're not very diverse, which like maybe helps people to get along. If they like, if for example, they've studied similar topics at university, they just have yeah. more in common that like helps to bond them. That, that has like major costs elsewhere, but. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that helps, but. 
I guess the thing so, is, like, if I think about other movements that are very fractious, they're, I think they're not more diverse than us. Yeah. I don't know. Like, the climate change movement is not particularly diverse, I don't think. But, says, and there's yeah. other ways that you'd expect uh, effective altruism to be way more, have way more infighting, because it's so many people working on very different problems very different who things, should just yeah. be, like, competing, like, gouging one another to yeah, try, try yeah. to grab resources from these well, other causes they don't care so much about. Yeah, I mean, here's, okay, here's a pessimistic okay, yeah. account, which is, like, maybe it's just been boom time. Like, I see. we have this wave of being extremely successful, especially in terms of raising funding, yeah. which is perhaps the thing that people will fight most about. Supposing yeah. that weren't the case and it was actually quite limited... Yeah. Perhaps then everyone starts getting more fighty. Yeah. It doesn't quite ring true to me. Okay. Because it just it doesn't feel like that's the personality of the people. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I feel like if 80,000 hours is finding it hard to raise funding, you know, would we really start savaging other groups? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's helpful that we're not activists. I like there's yeah. a certain activist culture where, I mean, in to, fact. You have to whip yourself into a lather to like be so angry about something. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think there's more cases. So like some of my views on, um, insofar as I've become just more skeptical of some of the existential risk arguments, I definitely get stressed sometimes talking to people, which kind of makes sense where they're like, I think the world is going to end and you are getting in the way of this. Mm. Like, if I'm wrong. Yeah, God. <laughs> yeah, like... Blood on your hands. Bro. Exactly, yeah. And so I definitely have felt that quite consciously you know, that creates attention. And so yeah. I think that is quite a natural way of going if you're working mm. on something that you think is incredibly important. And someone else is then, like shrugging um, their shoulders and saying, oh, why bother giving money to this? Yeah, exactly. Or even like, you know, encouraging people to give, to do something else. Yeah. And so I do think you acquire like quite strong Restraint. cultural norms and like encouragement of that to, and the thing from individuals to Could also just that be that people expect that if they make great arguments, then they're going to persuade people. So that is just the best way to go to raise more money, say, for your problem area, is to make a good case. And so just, like, shouting at people and yeah. trying to, like, talk them down just isn't so useful, even from a purely selfish point of view. Yeah. But then we need to set of norms such that that's the, that's case. the case. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like we I feel do like, kind of have that. Yeah. I think I just feel like they're all quite... This all feels like it could be quite fragile. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I suppose so... I'm often more keen for effective action to be involved in politics and perhaps to like have a bit more of an activist edge, but I yeah. suppose this should give me pause that like, even like relatively, like even if we get some big wins in the next decade, like the, oh, like, the yeah. cultural implications it could have could be pretty bad. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, especially, I mean, if it was like aligned with a political party, that could be fairly bad. I mean, like the fact that, you know, as is common in the A, people often look at the neoliberals as this really fascinating example. Yeah. The fact that they were heavily advising like Pinochet's. Hmm. <laughs> Potentially, it was just strategically extremely bad move. Yeah, right. Um, because it's like, well, now they're the people who are like happy to advise dictators. It's crazy. Yeah. Just to be clear, talking about neoliberalism in almost the inverse, like a very different way than the neoliberal podcast that I went on, on this like new wave of neoliberalism. Oh, that, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, well, I guess it's like half different, half different. about why have they chosen this name to refer to <laughs> like, this different thing? Like liberalism is already like means like four different things yeah, yeah, yeah. now you've added like another variant yeah it wasn't my choice uh yeah. so i, I know not. i know i'm aware but, yeah. yeah i suppose what was the reason i suppose it's a, a, a word that a lot of people use so you can kind of grab it and like seemingly have like a lot of mind share with yeah. people and it's also no one else is calling themselves neoliberal to me and the yeah. other things so it's like actually kind of easy yeah. to take over the word but it does seem like it has some massive costs yeah okay well on a separate note a you know, different implication of having like a long-term view on EA is important of academia as well. I mean, it's obviously something I'm close to. Academia is very slow, <laughs> but it means it's very long-lasting. So yeah. 
you know, my undergraduate students, they still read Peter Singer's Famine, Efforts and Normality, which was published 50 years ago now. Mm. So, and they still, well, in fact, they still read Mill's Utilitarianism that was published two centuries ago. So it's very slow to change, but that also means it's very long lasting in terms of... Very long lasting because it doesn't make like impulsive mistakes, doesn't like do something really stupid. Well, just, I think, I just think like different social systems have different rates of change built into them. So companies grow very quickly, but also die very quickly. Yeah. Academia is just slow moving in terms of like the like you know the norms, what things get accepted, and so on. Yeah. yeah I so, guess I'm wondering what's the causal pathway there to surviving a long time. But I mean, I guess there's some intuitive sense in which those things are related. Although I wonder whether it goes the other way that things that last a long time tend to like then have a longer term perspective and read older stuff because I mean they have more history, so there's like yeah. more older things to read. But. Oh, I was just meaning. The benefits of influencing academia, if you only care about the next 10 years, let's say, okay. are very small. <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> Whereas if you care about the next two centuries, then it's yeah. like, okay, well, maybe I, maybe we could write a book. Yeah. You know, like it's relevant for, you're writing a book. Do you want to get the mm. something that could hit the bestsellers list? Or, or do, you do you want, want something that could be go on the, on the um, course list? Course list and yeah. could stay on the course list perhaps, in a, you know. Yeah. For 100 years or something. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so your point was that academia changes very gradually, but I guess that means that changes are then quite persistent. Um, exactly, yeah. And I suppose, so if you want to have a short-term impact, like trying to change academia is a fool's errand, but if you want to like have impact over centuries, then influencing academia seems like a good idea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah are there any other implications that this has for the strategy for effective altruism as a kind of social group that you haven't raised already? I think maybe higher priority on research I think, again, there was a kind of feeling maybe a couple of years ago, which perhaps no one would have ever endorsed, but again, perhaps was a feeling in the air, which is like, oh, well, we've now figured stuff out. <laughs> and Did anyone think? Okay. Wow. I guess I didn't think that. But maybe I thought we'd figured out the bigger picture and then it was now filling in the specifics. I definitely felt like there was a gear shift from an atmosphere of where they're really trying to do research and understand like we're super uncertain and what should we focus on hmm. to instead like, okay, we need to go really hard on, I mean, in particular, yeah. short timelines AI. Yeah. This sometimes gets described as the great short timeline scale of 2017. <laughs> <laughs> um, I've heard that before, yeah. Uh, 80,000 hours just kind of not, I guess like, so we've, we've gotten into AI, but I suppose maybe not like, we didn't get into it quite as aggressively and now we're not getting it out of it quite as aggressively. Okay, I mean, there was just definitely 2017, there was a period where, some people were making quite strong claims. Yeah, I see. You know, even saying like five-year timelines. Yeah. And a lot of people suddenly kind of woke up and got quite... Yeah. Uh, so in as much as that's wrong, we're kind of saved by just the fact that it's like hard to shift gear a lot. So it's like plans tend to have a bit of like... Uh, but yeah, I think, but I think that's... That's good sometimes. Often good, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think those five-year predictions aren't looking so great two years, <laughs> um, two years on. Egg on our face maybe in three years. Oh, think, well, exactly, yeah, next year that all happens. Yeah. But one of the things, yeah, if again, you have kind of my view on the current kind of state of play, I think I would want just more investment and investigation into, yeah, so take like Great Power War or something. Here is a thing. I'm like, Great Power War is really important. We should be concerned about it. People normally say, oh, but what would we do? And I'm kind of like, I don't know. I mean, policy around hypersonic missiles is like one thing, but really, I don't know. We should be looking into it. Yeah. And then people are like, well, I just don't really know. And so don't feel excited about it. But I think that's just evidence of why diminishing marginal returns is not exactly correct. It's like actually a S curve. I think yeah. if there'd never been any like investment and discussion about AI, 
and now suddenly we're like, oh my god, AI is this big thing. We'd be like, what? No one know what to do about this. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an initial period of where, yeah, you're getting increasing returns, where you're just actually figuring out like where you can contribute, and that's interesting if you get that increasing returns dynamic because it means that you don't want really spread, even if it's the case that. It's a reason to group a little bit more. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, a couple of reasons from, you know, which kind of favor AI work over these other things that maybe I think are just as important in the grand scheme of things is, well, we've already built, we've already done all sunk costs of building kind of infrastructure to have an impact there. Yeah. And then secondly, when you combine with the fact that just entirely objectively, it's boom time in AI. So if there's any time we're going to focus on it is when there's, you know, vast increases in inputs. And so perhaps it is the case that, you know, maybe my conclusion is perhaps I'm just as worried about war or genetic enhancement or something. But while we made the bet, <laughs> we should like, yeah, we should keep Follow going through on that. that. Yeah. Uh-huh. But overall, I still actually would be pretty pro people doing some significant search into other like potential top causes and then figuring out, yeah, what should be, what should the next thing that we like focus quite heavily on be? Yeah. I guess especially people who haven't already committed to working on some other area. If they're, yeah, if they're still like sure. very flexible, you're yeah, like, well, maybe you should sure. go and think about great power conflict. Um, yeah, exactly. If you're yeah. still an undergraduate student. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Makes sense. And then especially different causes. Very, you know, one issue that we've found is that we're, champ- we're talking so much about bio risk and AI risk. And they're just quite weird, small causes that can't necessarily absorb like large numbers of people, perhaps yeah. who don't have, you know, like I couldn't contribute to bio risk work, yeah. yeah, nor do I have machine learning background and so on. Whereas some other areas causes like, I think climate change and like great power war potentially can absorb just much larger quantities of people. And that could be a strong reason for looking into them more too. I guess in terms of the culture that we build of effective altruism being really important, this question of should we be like really nice to one another in order to like prevent people from burning out and uh, yeah. encouraging more people to join because it's like, not this incredibly unpleasant uh, argumentative landscape. Yeah. Do you think that we're nice enough as it is? Because uh, so there are considerations on the other end that sometimes to like really persuade people, it can be helpful to be like very forceful and belligerent. And like some of the most influential individuals in history seem like they were you know, not always the nicest people yeah, yeah. To, to work with. So yeah, what, where do you stand on that kind of culture of EA? Yeah, I mean, I think distinguish between two, there's kind of intellectual niceness and then kind of activist niceness and po niceness in both cases. So like on the intellectual side, like, I think EA can just be quite a stressful place. So mm. like I made this commitment because I wanted just to start actually publishing some stuff to like write in the forum. I think after my first post or first real post, which I think was the age-rated voting, I had an anxiety dream every evening, like every night where I would wake up and my dreams would be like the most literal <laughs> like anxiety dreams you can imagine, which are like, people talking and people being like, yeah, we lost all respect from you for <laughs> you after writing you know, that post. That's incredible. And I'd like wake up and wow. um, yeah. And that's for the whole like week. Yeah. That is and then so it, dark. I know. <laughs> and if this is like how I feel and yeah. similarly, even, how does it feel as a new member of this forum? If yeah, you like write something that has a mistake in it. Exactly. Yeah. And then certainly in the stuff, which is like, you know, being more skeptical of AI or like yeah. existential risk. And it's like, they're just people who are smarter than me and who are better <laughs> informed than me. Yeah. And like, it's very stressful. To, for sure. <laughs> very for stressful sure. to disagree with them. And then yeah. on the forum, then you've got, the you know, no longer got the benefits of being able to see someone's body language and so on, yeah. which obviously are often kind of softening. And then also like the upvote, downvoting. It's like, 
light thing. Boom! It's like, okay, what's that? Like, yeah. Have, yeah, conversation with people like booing and cheering. Yeah. What is this, like the Colosseum? It's like going to yeah. release the lions on you? Yeah, exactly. So that made me like, yeah, quite worried that if I feel like that, well, how do a wider portfolio of people feel? And then I also have experience from this in philosophy as well, where the difference between typical culture and analytic philosophy and say at GPI is yeah. just so stark. With typical analytic philosophy, it's like the put down mm. and crush a butterfly on a wheel. Yeah, yeah. Like, can you define a concept? Like, if you can't do a necessarily insufficient conditions for what a concept is, it's like you'll get kind of sneered at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then GPI is just extremely cooperative, yet extremely frank, mm. extremely honest. Like Hillary will say to me, <laughs> you know. I think this is a bad paper or just like, <laughs> I think this idea does not make any sense Yeah. or just, I don't know, just like the most blunt thing. And I just feel empowered by it because I'm yeah. like, wow, that's helped. Thank you for that feedback that is just reflecting reality and has yeah. no... And trying to help you. And trying yeah. to help me. Yeah, exactly. Coming not from, try to put you down so Hillary can a, feel really big. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's all coming from a, like a place of love. And that's just super productive, mm. like that cooperative yet kind of honest environment is just so powerful for making intellectual progress and the challenges when you're interacting especially online are just well yes it's even in person it's just a real challenge to try and build that culture Mm. that's super important because you know it's kind of like a public good maybe any individual can look smarter by being a bit douchier so it's like easy to break down but i think we want to try and enforce it very hard and then online it gets just doubly hard because yeah, you just you're able to convey so much less nuance, yeah. and so that does mean I think we should just try really hard to um, yeah try and be as nice as possible. Brian Tomasic is probably the oh yeah that, maybe the ex- incredible extreme paradigm where uh, just absolute legend. I feel like people could just just light, a unit of niceness. I know. I feel like people could just write this like scathing critique, yeah. like. like oh, you know, hit hit piece, and there would just be like a single like that would be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> like you know, like <laughs> thanks for this piece. valuable information <laughs> that you have gone out of your way to provide to me to yeah. improve my views. Yeah, so it's really powerful. But other people kind of yeah, yeah. demonstrate it too, Jeff Kaufman and so on. So yeah, so I'm really pro that. And I just the key thing is I just don't think there's anything lost here. Mm. I think people worry that oh well, if we're too nice, then you know we won't be a real kind of community making intellectual progress. And I just don't think there's a trade off here. I think there's a trade-off where you, it costs you a bit of time, but I think that's easily worth it. You know, like I can just, if I'm like well, posting on... I, I'm not even sure that's always true. Okay, it's like yeah. sometimes just like wording something in such a way that it's incredibly cutting is like uh, okay. a bunch of extra work. If you're like... Now I know to... how you spend your time. <laughs> <laughs> It's how I, I used to spend my time. Well, I don't, I don't think I've actually had a period of my life where I've oh, tried to do that. You've never, you never replied to someone and thought, "Oh, how can I frame this in a way that looks particularly good?" I do admit that one of my favorite essay forms is the scathing, oh. Oh. like the view of a it's book. Such a like the guilty scathing. pleasure for me. Yeah. And I do oh. at one at some point in my life, I want to do that. But yeah, I, I used um, to just like stay awake for like hours late at night, just reading like the most scathing film reviews. There was an author who just like hated really lots funny. of films. Yeah, but it, it's, that's a dark side of my personality, I guess. If anyone wants, yeah, one of my favorite essays is a review of Colin McGinn's book on disgust by I think her name's Professor Nina Sturminger, and it's so good. <laughs> We'll stick up a link for you listeners. <laughs> oh, <laughs> enjoy and uh, Jeffrey Palmer. Yeah. 
think that's his name, 50 Years of Bad Glamour Advice. Mm. Um, oh, that's about Drunk, Drunk and White. White. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. Yeah, it's excellent. You can see inside Will McCaskill's dark heart, everyone. Yeah, absolutely. That's my guilty pleasure. But we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't be like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's not the way for EA to go. Yeah. So on the EA forum, I mean, I am like incredibly jaded and like thick skinned, mm-hmm. I think, because it's just from like having been for 12 years and just like oh, an right, online yeah. knife fight all the time. And so, yeah, when people are rude online, I'm, I'm just like, whatever. And then I block them <laughs> and then like yeah, move yeah, on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, so the EA forum, I think in a technical sense, it's like people are quite polite. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, certainly wouldn't get upvoted for just being like outright rude and saying that someone sucks or something like that in the yeah. way that like you might get like really low quality comments on Facebook. But then in terms of like intellectual arguments, very often it's like people just like correct you very bluntly and there's no sense of like, thanks for writing. Or like, you yeah, know, I say, thanks yeah. for writing this post. Here's a way that it could be better. Like yeah, we're working yeah. together towards a common goal. That's something that's sometimes missing. It just feels yeah. like to be corrected is like such a status loss. Uh, yeah. And so for example, like I don't really comment. I don't really write that much in the air forum and I wouldn't want to in part for this reason, which yeah. I think is like not ideal. Yeah, I think that's the same with me. Like I had to set up a commitment mechanism for me to be posting at all. Even yeah. though I had stuff that was like, well, I want to be getting it out. Yeah. And then even with that commitment mechanism, I didn't produce as much as I was planning. And I think it is that, like, even though I do think we're way better than the normal the normal online community, which is a fairly low bar, yeah. certainly the normal web for them, it's still just like, ah, oh, this is And like, yeah, people, yeah, I do think you really need to go the extra mile in terms of just being like really supportive and yeah, and appreciating the contribution that people make. Like, even yeah, if they exactly. write a terrible post, like they put time in to like yeah. try to provide information voluntarily yeah, exactly. to you for no money. And, they, like, and yeah. you chose to read it to like try to learn something. So Exactly. And everyone yeah. starts off terribly. Like, yeah. listen to the early Beatles. It's mad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> read early Givewell's post. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, think, think what Holden and Ellie became and then yeah. read their early posts. And it's really bad. Yeah. And yeah, we should be like encouraging and supportive, I think. The other side of being nice is then with respect to, you know, level of commitment and so on as well, where, yeah, there I just think, again, my worries are more long, you know, this has been pretty notable from the kind of anonymous advice mm. that ATK has been getting, yeah. where, you know, it's, there's a lot, lot of different ideas in there, but there's definitely a theme of, you know, anti-burnout stuff. And yeah, I feel like, you know, we're an extremely selected group for people who are scrupulous and worried (laughs) about not doing enough and so on yeah and so i don't think on the margin that we need to be pushing more on that and instead pushing um towards a sustainable level of yeah exactly people having good lives all things considered that's like yeah and it's actually possible to achieve that like i feel over the course of the last let's say three years i have actually gotten to a state where i'm happy to think about in a way that is asking the question, what is a a year, for example, that I could just quite not just like eke through for the next 40 years, mm. but happily like have for the next 40 years. Yeah. Or to think, well, 10% of the weeks this year are gonna be for me. Mm. And I don't have to think about this in instrumental terms. Yeah. Actually, I still even feel nervous saying that. But <laughs> <laughs> But I'm definitely getting more to the stage. It's like, yeah, I took six weeks of holiday over the last year. I didn't work. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> it was really good. Yeah, I love and, holidays. Yeah, and yeah. if it's like, well, that was still just a small portion. I mean, it's definitely reassuring. It's like, it's actually quite unclear to me whether that's increasing or decreasing my overall productivity. 
but I feel like I've at least made a lot of progress in getting to the stage where I do feel okay to be doing something just because I, <laughs> you know, without any kind of instrumental aim for the greater yeah. good. And instead it's like, well, this is what I want to do. So I think we can, yeah, get to that stage. Yeah, you're a much more scrupulous person than me. I guess actually, no, I used to feel guilty about this 10 years ago. And I think just over time, it's like become much less salient to me. And I think also starting to take antidepressants, I just like don't ruminate or feel guilty like nearly as much as I used to. So yeah, interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. Sometimes people, when they tell me that they've like taken holidays or something, I get the sense that they feel ashamed about it. They like feel like I'm going to be judging them. I'm Definitely just like, some people feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just like, I hope you had a great time on your holidays. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm so, like I'm a little bit jealous kind of anything. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Actually, yeah. There's also a, a wider thing I really want to emphasize, which is that I think a lot of people feel guilty about not achieving enough or doing enough. Yeah. Like, again, I feel like this. And there's a big part of my brain that's dedicated to being like, well, you're not as productive as Holden. You're like not as smart. <laughs> it's like, you're not as smart as Hillary. You're like, yeah. you know, not as creative as Toby. And again, there's just, we really need to have like, try and like avoid that kind of competitive behavior, like yeah. competitive thought, especially if as is happening, more and more, we want people to pursue career paths that are kind of high risk in the sense that like, well, you're going to pursue this policy path or this research path, and probably it's not going to do anything, yeah. but some chance it has like this really big contribution. If instead you're in this mindset of like, well, I need to be really proving myself. Yeah, it's going to make people really risk averse. Gonna, I feel exactly, like yeah. People won't respect them if the thing doesn't pan out. Yeah, but like exactly. I, yeah. The ideal case for me is like 90% of careers don't pan out. They shouldn't feel bad after the fact. That's what I wanted them to do in the first place. Yeah. It's like, and I think that is a, yeah, again, a bit of cultural innovation that we're going to have to try and grapple with. Because in the past, it's almost been that, you know, we've pushed against the idea of, you know, following your passion, yeah. quotation marks. Whereas that is at least a guard against, you know, you can pursue this thing. It's like, oh, yeah, I just love being a researcher or something. You actually do want that. Yeah, that allows you to pursue these careers that are much kind of higher risk. Yeah, I get, yeah, I get the sense that people think that other people are judging them morally, like much more than they actually are. I'm just oh, like, yeah. I just like, I just don't spend time thinking about like whether other people are like meeting their moral duties. <laughs> just like, do they have any idea how much time I waste and like spend on just like my own fun things? I, oh yeah, there's not enough hours in the day to be like worrying about like other people's ethics. And and to be honest, I just don't have. Uh, yeah, it just it's just I, I think not a thing. Like, but everyone is like so insecure, so insecure, or like so so nervous. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I imagine. If I treated someone else the way I treat myself in my brain, I'd be a terrible person. <laughs> I'd hate that. That would be awful. Like I would never, you know, if someone, yeah, came to me feeling yeah. stressed or anxious like, or something, like, I'd be yeah. compassionate to that person. Right. But I'm often, uh, yeah, that part of my brain is so just mean spirited to yourself. Yeah, it just has such a double standard. Like I would never judge someone else for not being smart enough or not being like <laughs> as productive as the most productive person I know. I mean, it'd be insane for me to do that. Yeah. But no, I still, yeah. Yeah. There's this whole other line of conversation about people judging. Yeah. People looking at like the most productive or smartest person they could find and then like feeling bad that they are not the smartest person in the world or in yeah, that situation. Yeah, like, yeah. That just commits 99.9 plus percent of the world to feeling bad about themselves. It's like, how the hell does that help anyone or make any sense philosophically or otherwise? It's like, just feel fine with whatever like level of ability you were born with and like try to make the most of that. But it's just, I mean, if you're feeling guilty about like characteristics you were born with, like I was born not tall enough and now I feel I should feel ashamed. That's like, it's crazy. 
It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, so one thing I found on that particular thing of comparison, which is definitely something my brain does a lot, is I don't think I ever really have succeeded at the, well, you should just be happy wherever you are. <laughs> the thing that I have found help, and it's kind of just accepting the fact that my this part of my brain is petty, mm. <laughs> is rather than looking at each person and, you know, I'll identify a trait that they're better than me at, yeah. trying to figure out what am I better than yeah. that? <laughs> Yeah, so at least I can be like, well, I'm funnier than this person, and I'm like, you know, taller. I don't know. I don't think taller. I don't think of those examples. But um, (laughs) yeah, you know, there's there's always going to be some way in which you're superior to this other person, and that satisfies that like petty little (laughs) (laughs) part of your brain that really is comparing yourself to everyone all the time. Yeah, it's interesting. I think in terms of getting people to, to get along and not fight and cooperate and have a good time, I guess people talk about all of these like formal mechanisms, like, oh, we can have like kind of agreements between groups and like all of these yeah. kind of cultural norms. I think sometimes I just want to suggest, how about we just use like the inbuilt way that humans have always tried to learn to get along with one another, which is like hanging out and actually being friends and like mm. enjoying one another's company. Yeah. There's like people out there who are doing projects that I either think are like useless or actively harmful. So yeah. I'm just like, I'm friends with them because yeah, I love yeah. their company and I, I, don't want, I don't want to hang out with them because they're, 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 they're nice people. Yeah. And the fact that I don't like think that their work is so useful is just like neither here nor there. And I think, yeah, we can just like make a lot of use of these like inbuilt, like evolved mechanisms for having people build teams. Yeah. I mean, I think it's notable that back in kind of 2012, 2013 kind of era, when there was was more tension between Mm. different groups in EA, it was so geographically split, you know, give well within New York and giving what we can within Oxford. And that meant we didn't talk at all. That meant there was like tons of misconceptions about what the other people thought. And similarly for like for other groups, where there's one thing that has been notable is, you know, now in EA, there's like a lot of movement. Yeah. People <laughs> go around a lot. Between the different hubs. and Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I, I think you're right. That helps a lot. I find it much, it's very hard to feel very angry at someone when you just like enjoy actually, having a beer with them. At yeah, the pub. yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this funny phenomenon where if people don't talk for a while, like months or mm-hmm. years where they just like happen not to interact, it feels like their relationship worsens or it's like, yeah. there's all of these like misunderstandings that build up where they're like, why the hell are they doing that? It's like, that doesn't make mm. any sense to me. And they get kind of like annoyed with one another. And yeah. it seems like you just kind of have to keep talking to one another. Like, unfortunately, like investing some time in communicating in order to prevent those like frictions from, from building up. Mm. I guess that's especially the case if you're working in kind of a related area. I think that the mechanism that this happens is that you see what other people people are doing but you never hear the reason like the 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 real reason and so it's like it just seems to you like people are making all of these mistakes because you don't understand uh, what's like yeah the the, the motivation for it and so you just like kind of like gradually respect them less of course this is this is kind of irrational you should be able to adjust for it but i think it's not so easy to in practice yeah i think that's probably right all right, we should probably wrap up because this has been, uh, you're looking extremely tired and this has been a bit of a baton death march because <laughs> this is like where we're very much at the end of the day here. And, uh, yeah, I mean, covered... I, was, I was a bit tired when I started yeah. this <laughs> conversation. But... Yeah, maybe we're getting very authentic will because you're like losing self-control due to tiredness. Yeah, I'm worried. <laughs> <laughs> have to listen to this over. You don't want to see that. Yeah, I guess final question. Are there any, I mean, you've been like, your, your views have been evolving a whole lot over the last couple of years. Yeah. You've been developing these dangerous heretical views that are different than my own world. <laughs> we used to be agree on everything. But I know, it's no crazy, longer. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> are there any books you can recommend that I think like might might fill in kind of gaps in like understanding how your opinions have, have shifted over the last few years? Yeah, absolutely. There's a few I would recommend. One partly just because it's such a great book. It's like the best popular nonfiction I've read, I think, or among that is um, The Secret of Our Success by Joseph Heinrich, which is about cultural evolution and arguing that it's because of cultural transmission and learning that humans are so powerful and the kind of large brain size is, you know, more consequence of that rather than 
the other way around. And it's full of great stories of individual humans with big brains completely failing at achieving any of their aims because they don't understand the relevant cultural context. Ah, so yeah. people exploring the new world and just dying out because they had no idea how to um, cultivate the local crops or anything. Yeah. So that's one. Foragers, Farmers, and Fossil Fuels by Ian Morris, which I mentioned earlier. Again, it's a cultural evolution thing. The Rise and Fall of American Growth by Robert Gordon. Uh, very powerful account of just how much technological change there was in the period, let's say, 1870 to 1950, and just how technological change since 1970 has looked pretty slow pace by that comparison, and with some kind of reasons for thinking that economic growth might continue to be relatively slow for the coming years has also been quite influential. Well, this has been a, maybe more of a meandering conversation than, than I initially anticipated it being, but I think we've set kind of an agenda for a whole lot of other topics that we need to discuss a lot more in the coming years. And uh, Absolutely. I'm sure, I'm sure this will not be the, the, the last time that you come on the, on the show, so we have plenty more to talk about. Yeah, probably not, but thanks for having me on, Bob. <laughs> My guest today has been Will McCaskill. Thanks for coming on the show, Will. Thank you. Okay, uh, just a reminder to go fill out the expression of interest form uh, for people who want to potentially build links to the Global Priorities Institute at globalprioritiesinstitute.org slash opportunities. And as I mentioned at the start of the show, uh, you can find a broader list of problems that we uh, haven't discussed that much on the program, but which may be as pressing as our highest priority problem areas uh, that we list on our website. Uh, that's over at 80,000hours.org slash problem hyphen profiles. Uh, just go there and scroll down the page to the uh, later subheadings. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell, and transcriptions by Zaki Allhack. Thanks for joining and talk to you in a week or two.